This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. focusing in on the region of West Africa and particularly the Republic of Liberia who which for those who absolutely don't know is a small nation on the West African coast about the size of Ohio and you've been watching the news over the last 20 years or so, you're probably mostly familiar with Liberia from the 2014 Ebola epidemic there, uh, which we're mostly not going to address. But uh, some people might also remember Liberia for a series of particularly brutal and shocking civil wars that occurred there from the late 1980s to the early 2000s. Some of you, even though I haven't meant, I've mentioned him maybe a few times on the podcast, but uh, some people might even recognize the name of uh, one of Liberia's presidents during that period, Mr. Charles Gunke Taylor, who is currently uh, in serving a 50-year sentence in Britain uh, from the International Criminal Court for war crimes that he was alleged to have committed in the 1990s. But we're going to get very deep into the activities, the legend, the myth, and the reality of Charles Taylor and what he did. But before we jump into that very fascinating and murky and twisted story, there's a little bit of a historical housekeeping that I think we need to do, dear listener, 
if we're going to talk in a real way about the history of Liberia. Because uh, as it turns out, Liberia is unique among nations uh, in sub-Saharan Africa for a few different reasons. For one, uh, it is the only sub-Saharan African country that was never formally subjected to European colonialism or colonial rule. But the reason for that, and this is the other very unique thing about Liberia, is that it has a very deep, foundational, and very complicated relationship with the United States government going back to its very founding. Because you see, dear listener, Liberia is a country that was originally settled by uh, freed and emancipated African-American slaves who sailed over from the U.S. in the early and mid-19th century and settled there. And eventually, after many decades, would sort of establish themselves as the local ruling elite of the country, um, the descendants of these original settlers who uh, are now called Americo-Liberians, in contrast to the indigenous people that were living there before they arrived. So that means that from the very origins of Liberia, they have been deeply impacted uh, by American culture and American politics. And the U.S. government has had a very significant role in just about every major episode in Liberian history. And when we get closer to the modern era, I think uh, what you will see is a constant sort of, uh, I guess you could say, erasure of the pivotal role that the United States government played in some of the more horrific, uh, disastrous, and tragic events that unfurled there. Now, I've read many books about Liberia, about these conflicts, and as I went back and looked at some of them uh, in preparation for this episode, after a few years of getting, you know, I think uh, a little more Marx-pilled um, and getting a little bit more noited in general about, you know, uh, geopolitical intrigues, I couldn't help but notice that even some of the books that have really amazing investigative information about what happened there uh, can't help but have this internalized sort of liberal frame on a lot of the events that happen. And this is particularly relevant to whenever the nefarious role of the United States government is suggested, usually by Liberians themselves. Uh, there are several books I read that have a, uh, a sort of a throwaway comment of, you know, well, Liberian it, rumors quickly spread among Liberians that the U.S. was involved in X horrible incident. But, you know, in reality, the truth was much more mundane. And then they tell some story about how some tribal guy was drunk and did some horrible thing that had international consequences. And that's just how it goes in Liberia. It's just totally random. And there's just chaos and anarchy, blah, blah, blah. And frankly, I think that's bullshit. And so as we start out today, 
I think we're going to do, I'm going to lead you uh, on a kind of prologue episode, sort of in a Gustavus Myers tradition, because I finally found a book that embodies a kind of, I would say, uh, feisty uh, Gustavus Myers historical counter narrative to the entirety of Liberian history. Um, and particularly even its founding, which gets spun in certain ways. I think if you look it up on Wikipedia, I think what you normally will read is that, yes, these uh, African-American settlers, uh, a kind of a mixture of like freedmen and uh, mulattoes and uh, emancipated slaves uh, were sponsored by a white philanthropic society called the ACS, the American Colonization Society, that was founded in 1816. And this organization is usually presented as a kind of uh, liberal for its time kind of group of people. They often emphasize that it was dominated by Quakers and various abolitionists in the North. And many articles and books will kind of note that there were some slaveholders among the ACS uh, leadership as well, who maybe had slightly more self-serving racist motivations for raising a bunch of money to send a lot of freed blacks back to Africa far away from the U.S. And they'll even note that this was kind of controversial at the time. There are African-Americans who thought that this was uh, basically sus. Like, why are, why are you advocating, you know, some of us are third, fourth generation American at this point. We don't have a direct uh, connection uh, to anywhere in West Africa, even if they were from there. And so they saw some uh, shadier motives going on. But it still, nonetheless, is kind of presented as a relatively enlightened, if a little bit kind of racist. But this book that I'm going to draw from in the episode today kind of blows that out of the water and offers a very different kind of frame. This book, which actually just came out in 2020, is probably the first one I'd recommend to anybody who wants to understand the full historical context of Liberia without having to imbibe a lot of kind of uh, bourgeois mystification about the reality of the politics there. It is called Two Centuries of U.S. Military Operations in Liberia, Challenges of Resistance and Compliance by Niels Hahn, who is a Danish scholar. I believe he's a professor at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. And this book was published. Uh, now, this really struck me as sus when I first saw it, but I've looked into this author Um and I don't think he is, but th this is published by Air University Press at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama uh, as part of, let me see here, the Curtis E. LeMay Center for Doctrine Development and Education. <laughs> now, I, I had to look up Niels Hahn after I saw that this book was published by the Air University Press, and uh, I'm happy to report that I mean, they, I don't think they, they funded the research of this book. All that was through Danish grants. But I think that throughout this book, Niels Hahn uh, definitely has a kind of Marx-friendly uh, kind of bias, I would say, and also uses a lot of, uh, uses a kind of Marxist analysis at any points, and more importantly, employs uh, what you could call 
an Nkrumahist analysis uh, after the work of uh, Ghanaian revolutionary and Pan-Africanist revolutionary Kwame Nkrumah, uh, who wrote the very seminal book Neocolonialism, The Last Stage of Imperialism in 1965, uh, which Han quotes from liberally in this book. And it's interesting, I'll just say up front, that the that like a strategic sort of a arm of like a strategic thinking arm of the United States military would be the one that wants to put this book out because the United States military and the U.S. government do not come out uh, looking good in this book at all. But if I had to venture a guess as to why they would want to uh, publish this, and by the way, you can download it on defense.gov for free, is I think at the end of the day, if you're trying to train the next generation of ghoulish war planners in the U.S. military and you want to show case studies from around the world of how the U.S. military actually operates and how the U.S. government actually operates, you probably need a book like this to cut through all of the sentimental liberal bullshit and obfuscation that you find in a lot of general humanities, academia, uh, work about Liberia and also mainstream journalism and thing reports from NGOs like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International and groups, you know, sponsored by the UN. All of these groups uh, have such a kind of ingrained chauvinism. And I think a lot of them do mean well, but nonetheless, it's there. And what ends up happening is I think you, you really do get an inaccurate sense of how American power operates in places like West Africa. Whereas this book offers a very sober materialist analysis of the political economy of America's involvement in Liberia and West Africa in general. And I think what we'll see, even though we're not getting to the main characters today, of kind of the heart of the story, but there's going to be a variety of incidents that are going to make you roll your eyes and say to yourself that there is in fact nothing new under the sun. So without further ado, let's get in to chapter one of Demon Forces, History of the Great Liberian Misfortunes. expansion is interrelated with the establishment of the Liberian colony in West Africa 
Shortly after the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. government attempted to annex territories north and east of the Great Lakes. Although the first attempts were unsuccessful, the desire for U.S. expansion remained. President Thomas Jefferson's commitment to liberal expansionism is well captured in his letter to Nathan, Nathaniel Niles in 1801, in which he states that, quote, Montesquieu's doctrine that a republic can be preserved only in a small country is false. According to Jefferson, the reverse is the truth. Jefferson further expressed the goal of the expansion in 1809 to incoming President James Madison when he states that we, quote, should have such an empire for liberty as she has never surveyed since the creation. President Madison then reattempted to annex the territories north and east of the Great Lakes, also known as the War of 1812 against Britain. Early U.S. expansion clashed with many foreign powers, and in addition to officially declared wars, the United States was engaged in 23 undeclared external wars from 1787 to 1829. This created many foreign enemies. Uh, the high number of slaves within the United States created, quote, an acute national vulnerability that was, reor that was recognized in both North and South because any foreign power at war with the United States could see the advantage of sparking a slave insurrection. During the American Revolution, Britain used that strategy, and in the War of 1812, Britain again considered a strategy of landing on the Gulf Coast to encourage armed uprisings by both Indians and slaves. According to Kagan, the economic system of slavery was such a big threat to the United States that slavery shaped American foreign policy above all. Around 1800, many slave rebellions were motivated by the new winds that came from the French Revolution of 1789. At that time, French San Domingo had already experienced severe tensions between slaves and slave owners. San Domingo is one of the most profitable colonies in the world, with a white minority numbering around 30,000, around the same number of mulattoes and free blacks, while the black slaves numbered around half a million. The notion of liberty, equality, and fraternity fueled not only splits along the color line, but also in class divisions. Within two years of the beginning of the French Revolution, San Domingo experienced the most massive slave rebellion in history under the leadership of Toussaint Louverture. Slave rebellions, protests, and riots were already prevalent in the 18th century in places such as Jamaica, which was a leading British sugar-producing colony. However, these slave rebellions were subdued by force and provision of minor concessions to the slaves. What was significant with the rebellion at San Domingo was that many of the white wage laborers, also referred to as small whites, joined the slaves who welcomed them in the struggle for freedom. James notes that this marks a retreat of race prejudice and provides an example of a class struggle where the oppressed whites and blacks united against their dominators. The slave rebellion developed into the Haitian Revolution, and in 1793, slavery was abolished. The country was renamed Haiti, and this revolution became a landmark case in the history of slavery and Pan-Africanism. And as Dr. Eric Eustace Williams noted, after the establishment of Haiti, quote, every white slave owner in Jamaica, Cuba, or Texas lived in dread of another Toussaint Louverture. The ideas of the Haitian Revolution spread, and the number and intensity of rebellions increased across the slaveholding Atlantic world, and slave owners experienced serious tensions and rebellions in Barbados, Jamaica, and British Guiana. In 1800, Virginia experienced the Gabriel Conspiracy, which was the largest attempted rebellion at the time. Under the leadership of the blacksmith Gabriel, a large number of suppressed people, including slaves, mulattoes, and lower-class whites, united with the aim of overthrowing the white property-owning class who enriched themselves through the joint exploitation of slave labor and low-paid wages for work. 
The Gabriel conspiracy sought to end slavery under the slogan, Death or Liberty, and the means of pressure would be the seizure of the city of Richmond, Virginia, where Governor James Monroe would be taken hostage. The revolt failed, and the slaves who were considered its leaders were executed. Governor Monroe defined the rebellion as, quote, unquestionably the most serious and formidable conspiracy we have ever known of the kind. In response to a letter from Monroe, President Thomas Jefferson acknowledged the seriousness of this rebellion, but noted that the government would not be able to execute them all because, quote, the other states in the world at large will forever condemn us if we indulge in a principle of revenge. Acknowledging the importance of public opinion, Jefferson further noted, that, noted in the letter, that long-term imprisoning within U.S. borders could create long-term problems if public opinion demanded the release of the accused. Displacing the rebellious slaves outside the United States was seen as a possible solution, and as Jefferson notes, surely the legislature would pass a law for their exportation, the proper measure on this and all similar occasions. However, the question was, to where should these black people and other black people with similar rebellious tendencies be exported the next year, Jefferson suggested in a letter to Monroe the possibility of procuring, quote, lands beyond the limits of the U.S. to form a receptacle for these people because it was not desirable to have these people too close to the United States. Jefferson refers to Southern America and Santo Domingo as possible solutions and notes that Africa, quote, would offer a last and undoubted resort if all other more desirable should fail us. While considering how to, quote, get rid of some of the slaves, the debate at that time also focused on how to stop the supply of new slaves. The transatlantic slave trade had been central for early industrialization, where the textile industry was the main driving force of industrialization in the latter part of the 18th century. As Bradell notes, it was for cotton that the first real factories came into being, which were bound up with the Indian, African, and American trade and with the traffic of black slaves. Factories were established around the colonial ports, such as Liverpool and Glasgow, where capital was accumulated and initiated technological improvements. In the United States, the number of slaves had gradually increased over the centuries, but their growth accelerated even faster around 1800. This prompted concerns about U.S. national security. By 1860, Almost 4 million people were living in slavery in the United States, out of a total population of around 31 million. This prompted concerns about U.S. national security because, as Beckles notes, the transatlantic slave trade was based on military terror and subtle economic uh, manipulation. Since the early days of the transatlantic slave trade, slavery was fiercely resisted from the point of enslavement and continued into the Americas, where anti-slavery conflict was the order of the day. As the ruling elite in the United States increasingly became aware of the limits of slave labor, Adam Smith provided many arguments in favor of a safer economic system built on free wage workers, which would also be more efficient. Adam Smith argued that gentle usage renders the slave not only more faithful, but more intelligent and therefore, upon a double account, more useful. The more the slave approaches the condition of a free servant, the more the slave will possess some degree of integrity and attachment to his master's interest, which are virtues frequently belonging to free servants. According to Smith, slavery is also an inefficient mode of production because more slaves must be employed to execute the same quantity of work than in those carried out by freemen. Smith does not provide a measurement of the cost for slave labor compared to wage labor, but his arguments on productivity relate well to Abraham Maslow's uh, theory of 
human motivation, where motivation, quote, should be human-centered rather than animal-centered, and where every drive is related to the state of satisfaction or dissatisfaction of other drives. By addressing the basic human needs, such as the opportunity for social mobility, safety, love and belonging, esteem and self-actualization, and feeling of autonomy, the workers can be motivated to work by consent, which will increase productivity. The mode of production will thereby be safer because the form of power applied by the employer to make the workers work shifted from coercive power to consent power are what Bertrand Russell called naked power to traditional power. Russell describes naked power as the application of direct violence, such as slavery or the booty extracted by the highwayman from his victim or by a conqueror from a vanquished nation. The definition of naked power is psychological, and for the person it is a matter of consciousness. A worker who is conscious of how exploitation takes place is likely to revolt because the increase of socialistic opinion makes the power of the capitalist more naked. From this perspective, slave labor is a dangerous mode of production because the use of naked power is undeniable. In 1792, the slave trade was first banned by the Danish legislature based on recommendations from a commission established by the Danish finance and trade minister, Ernst Heinrich von Schimmelmann. It should be noted that the Danish slaveholders had experienced social unrest in the Danish West Indies, and the commission was not established by a philanthropist, but by a slave owner, Schimmelmann. He owned more than a thousand slaves who worked on his plantations in the Danish West Indies, but he had been influenced by the liberal thoughts and profitability of the colonies that could increase if the slaves were treated better. In the same year, the British Sierra Leone Company had been established as a successor to the St. George's Bay Company, which half a decade earlier had been unsuccessful in establishing a free settlement for the destitute black people in London. The Sierra Leone Company succeeded in establishing the colony of Sierra Leone in West Africa, and by 1800 transferred more than 1700 black people from the British territories in North America to Sierra Leone. The British Empire banned the slave trade in 1807, which was followed by a similar ban by the United States in 1808. The abolition campaign that destroyed the slave trade was guided by humanitarian philanthropic rhetoric, which Eric Williams notes was, quote, one of the greatest propaganda movements of all time. It was often represented as the work of God rather than driven by selfish interests. Williams further notes that France suspected Britain of abolishing the slave trade based on selfish motives because, quote, her colonies were well stocked with Negroes. So in light of the outlaw of the slave trade, in 1816, the Society for the Colonization of Free People of Color in America, commonly known as the American Colonization Society, ACS, was established to deal with some of the problems of slavery. According to its constitution, the main objective of the ACS was to promote and execute a plan for colonizing, with their consent, the free people of color residing in our country, in Africa, or such other places Congress shall deem most expedient, and the society shall act to effect this object in cooperation with the general government and much of the states as may adopt regulations upon the subject. The dominant presentation of the ACS is influenced by liberal idealism and notions of philanthropy, humanitarianism, and freedom, which has roots in literature published in the 1800s. However, the philanthropic presentation of the ACS is contradicted by statements and reports from leading members of the ACS that point to racist motivations. Dr. J.H.T. McPherson of Johns Hopkins University acknowledged in 1891 some of the leading members of the ACS spoke directly about the, quote, 
desirability of removing the turbulent free Negro element. He notes that such remarks, quote, of these gentlemen and others of similar views, have subjected the society to many unjust attacks, but the guiding principles of the society itself have always been distinctly philanthropic. In a similar defense of the philanthropic notion, Henry Noble Sherwood noted in the Journal of Negro History that, quote, one finds it difficult to explain how the colonizationists could argue that one of their objects was to remove a dangerous element from our population. The philanthropic notion of the ACS has survived the contradicting statements from some of the leading members of the ACS and been reproduced in various ways in most of the literature published on Liberia. From the beginning of the 20th century, it has gradually become the dominant notion that Liberia was founded in 1822 by freed slaves from the United States with the support of the ACS. This view appears as an axiom, sometimes without any references, because this view indicates a harmonious and cooperative relationship between the ACS and the freed black slaves, it does not capture the history of the fierce struggle against slavery in the Americas before the founding of Liberia. Some authors have even romanticized the ACS and the founding of Liberia, such as, such as Tom W. Schick in his Behold the Promised Land, who stated that the immigration of Liberia, quote, might well be viewed romantically as a kind of homecoming, which has a certain biblical quality about it. Other scholars argue that Liberia was not founded by freed slaves from the United States or by a philanthropic society, but by white slave owners in the U.S. Liberia was founded in close cooperation with the U.S. government, which was concerned about the increasing number of slave revolts and growing black population in the United States. Amos J. Bayon, in the American Colonization Society and the Creation of the Liberian State, noted that the board of the ACS was composed of southern slaveholders who had a strong desire to protect the institution of slavery. He argues that the main reasons for that body's formation were to mitigate the danger of further slave revolts and secure slavery. The ACS predominantly focused on free blacks because they were the primary source for insurrections. G. E. Segby Boley's Liberia argues that the ACS was, quote, the design of the white man in attempting to remove totally from the continent of North America all black people with a focus on those blacks who had been emancipated. Other scholars have suggested that Liberia is an example of black imperialism in Africa, where the black settlers, who became known as Americo-Liberians, de facto colonized the territory, intending to develop Liberia into a great nation. Robert Capel, in his article Resistance of the Liberian People, argues that the colonization was an American project where Liberia was to be the starting point for, quote, American penetration of the whole African continent. The contrasting perspectives on the reasons why the ACS was established and Liberia founded are significant, and as this book demonstrates, the United States has had multiple interests in Liberia that have changed over time. An issue that becomes clear from the historical documents of the ACS is that the organization was not established as a philanthropic society, but as a society consisting of white slave owners that feared the slave rebellions. Robert Finley, president of the University of Georgia and co-founder of the ACS, writes in a letter from February 1815 that, quote, The longer I live to see the wretchedness of men, the more I admire the virtue of those who desire, and with patience labor, to execute plans for the relief of the wretched. On this subject, the state of the free blacks has very much occupied my mind. Their number increases greatly, and their wretchedness, as appears to me, Everything connected with their condition, including their color, is against them. Nor is there much prospect that their state can ever be greatly ameliorated while they shall continue among us. 
Could not the rich and benevolent devise means to form a colony on some parts of the coast of Africa, similar to that of Sierra Leone, which might gradually induce many free blacks to go and settle, devising for them the means of getting there, and protection and support until they were established? Could they be sent back to Africa, a threefold benefit would arise? We should be clear of them. We should send to Africa a population partly civilized and Christianized for its benefit, and our blacks themselves would be put in a better situation. Their concern about the, quote, black problem is further captured retrospectively in Carey's study of the rapid growth of the black population in the United States presented to the ACS in 1832. His figures show that from 1790 to 1830, the white population increased by 80%, while the black population increased by 112%. Carey notes, quote, It is only necessary to cast a furtive glance at the scenes in St. Domingo to understand its great magnitude and importance, which is an admonitory lesson in favor of colonization. Shortly after the ban on the slave trade, Sierra Leone was consolidated as a British crown colony in 1808, and Freetown became the base for the Royal Navy's West Africa Squadron. Britain had begun to send its freed slaves to Freetown, but the USG and US slaveholders had still not found a place where they could send their black people. After the Gabriel Conspiracy in 1800, the legislature of Virginia had, during a secret session, instructed Governor Monroe to request that President Jefferson negotiate for the U.S. He urged the president to collaborate with European powers possessing colonies in the coast of Africa in order to give asylum to the freed slaves in the U.S. President Jefferson opened negotiations with the Sierra Leone Company in Portugal. However, he did not succeed. In 1816, the Virginia legislature adopted a resolution for the foundation to establish the ACS. It states that the legislature repeatedly has, quote, sought to obtain an asylum beyond the limits of the United States for such persons of color as had been or might be emancipated under the laws of the Commonwealth, but have hitherto found all their efforts frustrated. Consequently, on 21st December 1816, a meeting was held in the U.S. House to discuss the future of the freed black people. Carey notes that nearly all the participants were slaveholders, and the meeting was presided over by George Washington's nephew, Bushrod Washington, who was the Associate Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. During the meeting, the slaveholder John Randolph of Roanoke stated on the, quote, black problem that if a place could be provided for their reception and a mode of sending them hence, there were hundreds, nay thousands, who would, by manumitting their slaves, relieve themselves from the cares attendant on their possession. Afterward, a constitution was formed, and Bushrod Washington was uh, appointed as the president. Other people appointed as vice presidents were Henry Clay of Kentucky and General Andrew Jackson of Tennessee. The ACS was structured in such a way that the most important positions were held by people who had political influence in the South and by those who had, had the largest number of slaves. The less critical positions were occupied by people with smaller numbers of slaves. This, however, did not exclude other members of the society that were among the most influential people in the U.S., such as President James Madison. And just, uh, this is just an observation here. In his work, Democracy in America, Tocqueville effectively documents the enormous problems of the slave system and the fear of the white ruling class. He notes that, quote, In the extreme South, blacks are constantly accumulating and growing faster than whites, which will result in a struggle. The whites of the South, he says, have an immense superiority of enlightenment and means, but the blacks will have for them numbers and the energy of despair. 
Tocqueville observes that the danger, quote, presents itself constantly as a painful dream to the imagination of the Americans. The North talk daily about these dangers, but in the states of the South, the inhabitants are silent. They avoid talking about it with friends. Each person hides it, so to speak, from himself. The silence of the South has something more frightening about it than the noisy fears of the North. It is this preoccupation of the minds that has given birth to an almost unknown enterprise that can change the fate of one part of the human race, which is the formation of the ACS that has the goal of exporting at their expense to the coast of Guinea, the free Negroes. Okay, so this group of slaveholders, uh, southern slaveholders, uh, who are perennially freaked out about the potential of uh, slave insurrections happening uh, inside of the United States, decide to create this colony that will uh, exist as a sort of release valve um, and uh, actually preserve the system of slavery um, and at the same time uh, give them perhaps a base of operations in West Africa to inter uh, to intercept slave ships, which were by this point illegal um, because uh, for a number of reasons, they didn't want more slaves at that point because it was seen as an inherent national security threat after the Haitian revolution. But then, you know, <clears throat> oftentimes in the normal history of Liberia, they just jump ahead to, well, in the 1840s, uh, they were founded as a republic and were recognized, and the Americo Liberians just quote unquote settled the land. They built plantations, things of like that, and uh, the native populations, uh, you know, ended up basically becoming the the manual laborers on these plantations. But they kind of blow past the purchase, or more accurately, the seizure of the land itself, because just as in North America. Uh, people were already living there when they decided to uh, set down on the West African coast. So this part of the chapter tells a very colorful colorful story that uh, is pretty much never mentioned. So the ACS first sent, um, they, they sent a couple agents uh, to go to West Africa in 1817 to Sierra Leone, uh, but they realized that the British governor and all the local chiefs did not appreciate the idea of an American colony in the region. So they sent a second mission in 1820, a ship called Elizabeth, with 88 black Americans on board with three white representatives of the ACS, escorted by the U.S. Navy ship Cyan to Freetown and then Sherbro Island, which they had identified as the starting point for the colony. After arriving at Sherboro Island, the ACS agents realized the indigenous population did not appreciate their presence, and the natural environment was not healthy for foreigners. By May 1820, the three white ACS agents and 22 black colonists had died from malaria. So they abandoned, uh, after that, they abandoned the idea of colonizing Sherboro Island and sent a new team to contact the chiefs on the mainland. In 1821, the ship Nautilus arrived with a new group of black colonists headed by Jonathan B. Wynn, uh, Jonathan B. Wynn and Ephraim Bacon, uh, Ephraim Bacon, representing the U.S. government, and Joseph Andrus and Christian Wiltberger representing the ACS. However, the local chiefs were reluctant to sell their land to the Americans, and the ACS realized that, quote, from some unexpected disappointments, there are reasons to consider that the land purchase, quote, 
will not be attained until the arrival of another agent and additional means. So what were those additional means, I wonder? This is a story that you don't hear about in the mainstream uh, histories about Liberia and the ACS. As diplomatic means had failed, the USG assisted the ACS with military power. In late 1821, the ACS agent Dr. Ayers in the company of Captain Stockton of the USS Alligator arrived in Sierra Leone. From there, they purchased Cape Mezzerado, which they considered as the best spot for the American colony. The USS Alligator was built in 1820 as one of five schooners for the primary use of suppressing the slave trade and protecting merchant ships. On December 12th, Ayers and Stockton sailed to Cape Mezzerado to negotiate the land purchase with the local chief, Zolu Duma, also known as King Peter. After the king had refused to sell the land or meet for further negotiations, Ayers and Stockton returned a few days later to King Peter's village. Stockton put a pistol to the head of the king and forced him to sell the land to the Americans. A document prepared by the Americans was signed by King Peter, King George, King Zoda, King Long Peter, King Governor, and King Jimmy on the African side, and Captain Robert F. Stockton and Eli Ayers on the American side. John S. Mill and John Gregg witnessed it. According to the document, the kings sold the ACS, quote, certain lands, viz. Dozoa Island, and also all that portion of land bounded north and west by the Atlantic Ocean, and on the south and east by a line drawn in, an east, in a southeast direction from the north of Mesorado River. For this land, the kings were paid, and, ugh, yeah, the kings were paid, quote, six muskets, one box beads, two hogsheads tobacco, one cask gunpowder, six bars iron, ten iron pots, one dozen knives and forks, one dozen spoons, six pieces blue baft, four hats, three coats, three pair of shoes, one box pipes, one keg nails, twenty looking glasses, three pieces handkerchiefs, three pieces calico, three canes, four umbrellas, one box soap, one barrel rum. The agreement further states several similar items were submitted for payment, which include some food stocks, but Liberian historian uh, Joseph Say Guanu states that these items were never given to the kings. ACS colonial agent Dr. Eli Ayers reported to the ACS in 1821 that the value, quote, did not amount to more than $300, for which they had purchased, quote, a tract of country containing $1 million worth of land with the best harbor between Gibraltar and the Cape of Good Hope with an excellent place for watering ships. Ayers further notes that, quote, Stockton's dexterity at mixing flattery with a little well-timed threat had helped the Americans acquire the land. Oof. So, okay, yeah, they put a gun to the local chief's head and then paid him goods in the equivalent of $300 for an entire, for one of the best ports in West Africa, best natural ports in West Africa, and a bunch of land. So, ain't nothing new, etc. Anyways, the formal possession of Cape Miserato took place on the 25th of April, 1822, when Ayers hoisted the American flag in the presence of the local kings and indigenous people. Then, Ayers was appointed as the first U.S. government agent in May 1822. He employed the black settlers as laborers and began constructing the infrastructure of the American colony. Because the relationship between the ACS and the indigenous people was incredibly hostile, the black settlers were also used as soldiers to protect the colony. 
Britain offered to protect the colonists in exchange for a portion of their land, but the ACS rejected this. When the ACS representative Jehudi Ashman arrived in 1822, most of the black colonists were organized into a structured militia force. Shortly after forming the militia, the first attack on the colony hit on November 11, 1822, when the combined forces of several ethnic groups attempted to expel the colonists. The attempt was followed by a second attack on December 2nd, when an estimated 1,500 indigenous people made another unsuccessful attempt to remove the Americans. There were fewer colonists, but they had a technological advantage in terms of arms. At a crucial moment in the battle, Matilda Newport fired a cannon and killed a large number of indigenous people, which made the other indigenous people retreat. For some historians, this marks the triumph of civilization over barbarism. On the 1st December, uh... On December 1st, 1916, an annual national celebration holiday was established to remember this event, and a street was named after Matilda Newport. The celebration of this event has become a controversial symbol of the hostile division between the black settlers and the indigenous people, which still influences the political environment in Liberia almost 200 years later, though the National Celebration Day was officially abolished in 1980. The wars against the American colonists marked the beginnings of a series of armed conflicts with the indigenous people. The colony was placed on martial law and became dependent on the protection of the U.S. Navy, which patrolled the West Coast, reminding the indigenous people and European powers that the settlement was backed by U.S. military power. Whenever the colony was threatened by hostile indigenous people, who continued their attempt to remove the American colonists, the U.S. sent military support to quell the rebellions. Beginning with Liberia's establishment as a colony, through visits of United States warships to Liberian ports and through more urbane gestures, the U.S. had posted a keep-off-the-grass sign on Liberian soil. In addition to the threat of indigenous people, the struggle for control of the colony between the black settlers and the ACS agents continued, and the ACS had to grant the black settlers some political influence gradually. At the 7th annual meeting of the ACS in 1824, it was decided to name the colony on Cape Mezzarato, Liberia, based on the notion of liberty, and the capital, Monrovia, in honor of President James Monroe. By the end of 1824, the number of black people transferred to Liberia numbered 324. However, 72 blacks died, so the total number of black settlers remaining was 252. Monrovia had been fortified, and most of the men had been trained as soldiers colony began to expand under the guise of suppressing the slave trade with the backing of the U.S. Navy. The Navy had become more active in West Africa since Congress, in March 1819, had adopted an act relative to the slave trade, which authorized the, pres the U.S. president to deploy any of the U.S. armed vessels to intercept slave ships anywhere in the world. The act further allocated $100,000 to cover the cost attached to the implementation of the bill. Liberia became the place for the disposal of the slaves that were, quote, recaptured by U.S. anti-slave trade warships. The recaptured Africans were classified as Congos, and the first recaptured Africans arrived in Liberia in 1827, when the ship Norfolk delivered 141 recaptured blacks to the port of Monrovia. Suppressing the slave trade became a way in which to justify U.S. military advancement and expansion on the West African coast. In the name of suppressing the slave trade, General William Johnson of the ACS, with support from Captain Barber of the U.S. Navy, attacked the Spanish and French forts at Tradetown in April 1826. Tradetown was situated 100 miles east of Monrovia and was under the rule of King West. On January 16, 1827, 
the territory acquiesced to the authority of the ACS upon signing a treaty. The ACS used the charge of the slave trade against all Africans who opposed them as a way of forcing the indigenous chiefs and kings to sign treaties that would cede their lands to the Americans with the support of the U.S. Navy and the black settler militia. As the ACS, in cooperation with the U.S. Navy, advanced on the West African coast, more American colonization societies were established in the U.S. Under the leadership of Charles Harper, Virgil Macy, and John H.B. Latrobb, the Maryland Society appealed to the Methodist clerics and members of the Masonic Lodge for their direct support in removing the free black people from Maryland. After the Nat Turner Slave Rebellion in Virginia in early 1831, the Maryland legislators passed laws to assist the colonialists. The state of Maryland did not have the constitutional right to establish colonies overseas, but the lawmakers were, quote, more concerned with the most expedient way to remove free blacks than such inconvenient questions. So the Maryland State Colonization Society was established as a semi-public corporation. In January 1834, James Hall from the Maryland Society arrived in Monrovia and purchased Cape Palmas, around 400 square miles of land, for goods valued at $1,200. Cape Palmas today is near the border between Liberia and Ivory Coast. The architecture of the main city, Harper, includes a Masonic temple and churches reflecting the city's founders. Now, we'll, we'll get into the Masonic stuff uh, in a little bit, but... As in the case of the first settlement, the Maryland and Liberia colony needed protection by the U.S. Navy because according to the local Grebo ethnic group, their land had never been sold to the Americans. Petty wars broke out between the indigenous ethnic groups and between indigenous ethnic groups and settlers, and as the crisis over land, trade, borders, and authority escalated in 1843, the USS Cyan was deployed in order to settle the dispute. Commander Matthew Perry threatened the indigenous people with bombardments if they did not comply with his orders. Everybody run, run, run. Everybody scatter, scatter. Some people lost some bread. Someone nearly died. Someone just died. Police, they come, hammy, they come. Confusion everywhere. Seven minutes later, all don't cool down, brother. Police don't go away, army don't disappear. Them leave sorrow, tears, and blood. Them regular trade, man. Them leave sorrow, tears, and blood. Them regular trade, man. Them regular trade, man.
style. My mind different house, my body different house. I want build a house, I don't build a house. I know I won't quench, I won't enjoy, I know I won't go. So policeman go slap your face, you know go talk. Army man go weep on your sugar, they look like donkey. Rhodesia, they do them bone only just they have for nothing. South Africa, they do them home. Them live sorrow, tears and blood. Liberian colony enhanced U.S. trade with West Africa, and it increased significantly. However, as commercial interests increased, so did the conflicts with other powers in the region, in particular Britain. The ACS demanded taxes and tariffs from British traders within the territories of the Liberian Commonwealth, and the British traders refused uh, refused to recognize the ACS as an authority. The indirect role of the U.S. government made it challenging to hold the U.S. government responsible for trade disputes between British traders and the Liberian colony. Therefore, British Minister Henry Fox issued a letter to the U.S. Secretary of State, Abel Upshur, dated, 9, dated August 9, 1843, in which he states that the British government considered it, quote, very necessary in order to avert for the future serious trouble and contention in that quarter, that a Majesty's government should be accurately informed what degree of official patronage and protection, if any, the United States government extend to the colony of Liberia, how far, if at all, the U.S. government recognized the colony of Liberia as a national establishment, and consequently, how far, if at all, the United States government hold themselves responsible towards foreign countries for the acts of the authorities of Liberia. Fox further demands to be informed if the U.S. government protected the colony of Liberia and what the U.S. government considered to be the territorial limits because, quote, The authorities of Liberia have shown a disposition to enlarge very considerably the limits of the territory, assuming to all appearances quite unjustifiably the right of monopolizing the trade with the native inhabitants along a considerable line of the coast, where the trade had hitherto been free, and thus injuriously interfering with the commercial interests and pursuits of British subjects in that quarter. In order to avoid causes of future dispute and contention, Fox notes that the British government should be informed whether the authorities in Liberia are themselves alone responsible on the spot for the public acts, or whether if they are under the protection and control of the United States government. In a reply, September 1843, Upshur summarizes the U.S. government's position on Liberia, in which he states that the ACS funded Liberia to, quote, introduce Christianity and promote civilization in Africa, to relieve the slaveholding states from the inconvenience of an increase of the free blacks among them, and to present to the slaveholder an inducement to emancipate his slaves by offering to them asylum in the country of their ancestors. It was not, however, established under the authority of our government, nor has it been recognized as subject to our laws and jurisdiction. To the United States, it is an object of peculiar interest. For 22 years it has been allowed, with the full knowledge of all nations, to enlarge its borders from time to time, as its safety or its necessities required, this government will be, at all times, prepared to interpose its good offices to prevent any encroachment by the colony upon just any right of any nation, and that it would be very unwilling to see it despoiled of its territory rightfully acquired or improperly restrained in the excise of its necessary rights and powers as an independent settlement. As the tensions increase between the ACS and the U.S. government on one side and British traders and the British government on the other, 
ACS agent and secretary Ralph Randolph Gurley wrote a personal letter to President John Tyler in February 1844. Within the letter, he acknowledges two main problems. The first problem relates to the struggle between the black settlers and the ACS, which Gurley refers to as, quote, evils of disaffection and insubordination. From the very beginning, the ACS had experienced difficulties with controlling the black settlers, and Gurley notes that on some occasions, not only the good order, but also the very existence of the colony was endangered. With the support of the U.S. Navy, the ACS had resolved many disputes with the black colonialists, but had been forced to grant them concessions in terms of more political influence and civil rights. This included changes to the Constitution in 1839, from where the preamble speaks of this Constitution as granted to the citizens of the colony. Gurley notes that this grant could not be of political power, and notes that the land was purchased by the ACS and not the settlers. However, with the gradual ownership of the Constitution, the black settlers continued to push for more political influence and ownership of land, which resulted in the appointment of Joseph Jenkins Roberts as governor of Liberia in 1841, after the death of the first governor of Liberia, Thomas Buchanan. Guanu notes that family relations were critical. For example, Thomas Buchanan was a cousin of James Buchanan, who held positions as U.S. Secretary of State and President of the United States from 1857 to 61. J.J. Roberts was a successful mulatto businessman who was loyal to the white ACS agents, but his appointment as governor of Liberia marked a point where the black colonialists gradually gained more political and economic power from the white administrators. The second problem that Gurley referred to was the political status of Liberia regarding other foreign powers and the pressure from the British government, which he notes, quote, may affect to a great extent the interests of our commerce. Gurley notes that Liberia can become a mighty and independent commonwealth of freemen and Christians, which can extend its power and beneficence over the wide regions of Western Africa. However, in order for this vision to come true, Liberia must become an independent nation-state. Therefore, Gurley requests the president to secure to the small but well-organized state of Liberia a permanent and independent existence and such countenance from civilized nations as shall open before it an unlimited prospect of influence and improvement. Subsequently, John Simon Greenleaf, professor at Harvard University Law School, wrote the Constitution for Liberia, which came into force when Liberia declared independence on July 26, 1847. The motto, the love of liberty brought us here, was adopted. The flag was copied from that of the United States, containing 11 instead of 13 stripes and only one star. Britain recognized Liberia as an independent state in 1848, followed by France in 1852, Germany and Denmark in 1855, Belgium in 1858, and the United States in 1862. This part here is actually a Michael Parenti citation. Um... Whereas, quote, we the people in the Constitution of the United States referred to the white male property owning class, we the people in the Liberian Constitution referred to the black settlers only. And as in the United States, the Republic of Liberia embarked on a system where the small ruling elite discriminated against and dominated the majority. This is reflected in the Liberian Declaration of Independence, which states that, we, the people of the Republic of Liberia, were originally inhabitants of the United States of North America. In an amendment to the Liberian Constitution of 1847, it is clarified that the word people is not synonymous with inhabitants, and it does not include the white residents, just as the word people, as used in the preamble of the American Constitution, did not include the Negroes. 
The amendment further states that recaptured Africans are no more considered citizens than, quote, the Indians are included under the designation of people in the U.S. Constitution. The Liberian Constitution established the Republic exclusively as the, quote, black man's country based on black nationalism, although the first four presidents of Liberia were all mulattoes. The internal organization among the black settlers, who from the beginning had been influenced by the skin pigmentation and the white and black division that the black settlers had experienced in the U.S., was replicated in Liberia. Abayomi Wilfred Kanga's uh, 1926 History of Liberia states that Liberia was formed as a, quote, caste system with four distinct orders. The official class, which was the merchant princes, the common people, consisting of settlers who were laborers and small farmers, the recaptured, or Congos, and lastly, the indigenous Africans. The mulattoes were, by custom, forbidden to have social intercourse or marriage with the lower status. The Masonic craft, which was established in 1848, became an all-mulatto club where merchants, politicians, administrators, and church officials established a brotherhood which sought to maintain the mulatto hegemony in the republic. They further subdivided themselves based on degrees of skin color as little fair, quite fair, very fair, and almost white. They argued that because the climate was more severe on the people with lighter skin, those with the darkest skin, quote, should go to the soil for subsistence, whilst his brother with blue veins remained in the government offices to conduct the affairs of the state. Many of the mulattoes were children of white slaveholders in the United States who had had intercourse with their female slaves. For many slave owners, it was, it was an embarrassment to have mulattoes around, and Liberia provided an opportunity to send them away. Because of their light skin and family connections, the ACS administrators favored this group and placed them in the best positions in the colony. However, the mulattoes were a minority group, and the preponderant blacks did not trust J.J. Roberts, whom they considered, quote, more white than black. Before independence, intra-settler divisions had created the True Liberian Party and the Old Whig Party. The most powerful of those parties at the time of independence was the True Liberian Party, led by J.J. Roberts, who therefore became the first president of Liberia. This party consisted of the commercial elite and the civil servants in Monrovia, who predominantly were identified by their brown skin color, mulattoes. In contrast, the old Whig party was marked by the composition of mostly dark-skinned poor settlers who identified themselves as the Common People's Party and the True Black Man's Party dedicated to Africa for Africans and used their color differences and, quote, unmixed African descent as major political issues. In 1869, the old Whig party held a convention led by prominent dark-skinned politicians such as Edward J. Roy, James L. Smith, and the early Pan-Africanist Edward Blyden. This convention renamed the political party the National True Whig Party and took power in 1870 under President Roy. In 1871, President Roy secured a British loan of $500,000 for the development of Liberia, bearing a 7% interest rate in addition to the cost of $150,000 for the service. However, a large amount of the money disappeared before reaching the coffers of the Liberian state. Roy was arrested and killed by the displeased ruling elite in Liberia, which marks the first murder of a Liberian president. The state was left with a huge debt. The mulattoes came back to power under the leadership of J.J. Roberts, whereas Roy had turned away from the ACS and went to Britain for support to develop Liberia, Roberts had strong sympathies and praise for the ACS. This is perhaps best reflected in his speech to the ACS in 1869, which praises the philanthropic and benevolent slave owners for having established Liberia and for continuing to support it. However, as a minority, mulattoes could not hold power for long. 
and the National True Whig Party regained power in 1877. Under the leadership of President Johnson from 1883 to 1892, the True Whig Party established a political structure in Liberia, which was a de facto one-party system that lasted until a military coup in 1980. The main objective of the one-party system was national unity, as Britain and France gradually seized large portions of Liberia and withstand the continuing resistance from the indigenous people. The distinction of color became less significant, and the Masonic Order ceased to be a mulatto club, but remained as a mechanism to preserve the power of the settlers. Government officials in the legislative, judicial, and executive branches were all Freemasons, which made the lines of power interwoven. Until the early 1970s, there was, quote, no separation of powers between the hierarchy of the Masonic movement and that of the government. With the abstract notions of spirituality and divine forces, as reflected in American diplomat James Robert Spurgeon's 1899 speech to Monrovia Masons, called The Lost Word, the Masonic Order coexisted with many different churches the ACS had established and constituted additional, significant institutions of power. Christian missionary activities started in the late 1820s with the Baptists. This was followed by the Episcopalians, Presbyterians, and Lutherans who spread throughout Liberia where they built large churches, schools, and health centers. Liberia became a profoundly religious country where political and economic successes and failures were attributed to the will of God. There was a close relationship between the Masonic order and many of the churches, in contrast to the local religious societies such as the Poro and Sande societies, which predominantly remained indigenous secret societies. In contrast to the local societies, membership in a church became a symbol of civilization, but within each church, people were subdivided into hierarchies, and many were also members of indigenous societies. So, just to summarize... Liberia eventually comes an independent nation in 1847, in large part to protect itself from colonial encroachment uh, by Britain and France and also to consolidate its position against the various indigenous tribes uh, in the territory of Liberia. But then, after that, Liberia finds itself, uh, you know, in an inherently curious situation, kind of smack dab in the middle of great power rivalries, uh, imperial great power rivalries in West Africa, which, by the way, is something that still is relevant to this day. Uh, the sort of, um, you know, even though they do sometimes collaborate uh, in very nefarious ways, as we will see, there was a lot of economic competition between the three countries, uh, both during colonialism and during the era of uh, neocolonialism. So shortly after Liberia declared independence, the rivalry between Britain, France, and the U.S. intensified. In 1848, Britain offered its protection to Liberia and provided a small cutter armed with four-inch guns for coastal patrols as a gift to the new state. France followed suit and provided Liberia with arms and uniforms in 1852. However, when an uprising took place in Grand Bassa in the same year, the U.S. government deployed the USS John Adams, which demonstrated that the U.S. maintained its status as chief protector of Liberia. Guano maintains that many of the indigenous uprisings were covertly encouraged and supported by Britain or France as a way of putting pressure on Liberia to accept their protection and thereby turn Liberia into a protectorate and under the control of Britain or France. 
Liberia provided a favorable business environment for the U.S. on the West African coast, and the ports were of strategic significance for broader U.S. interests in Africa. In October uh, 1862, a treaty of commerce and navigation between the U.S. and Liberia amplified the status that the Liberian Republic uh, was in a unique economic sphere for U.S. interests and a de facto U.S. protectorate. However, the rivalry continued, and in 1869, the U.S. government was involved in a major border dispute with Britain and the government of Liberia. In 1879, U.S. Commodore R.W. Shuffled of the warship USS Ticonderoga reported that France made a new attempt to offer Liberia its protection. And in 1884, while a border dispute was negotiated between Britain and Liberia, France occupied some territories in Liberia. This occupation caused the U.S. Department of State to emphasize that Liberia was entitled to the sympathy and, when practicable, to the protection and encouragement of the United States. As numerous diplomatic documents demonstrate, these kind of disputes are the norm rather than the exception. The government of Liberia needed financial support to protect the borders that had not been clearly marked and for the development of the infrastructure such as roads. The debt burden dating from Roy's presidency had increased significantly over the years, And in 1906, under the presidency of Arthur Barclay, Liberia obtained another loan of $500,000 from the London banking house of Emile Erlanger. Sir Harry Johnston, who wrote a two-volume reference work on Liberia, including a comprehensive survey of Liberia's mineral wealth, saw opportunities for exploiting the wild rubber forest in Liberia and mediated the loan in London. The conditions were that 25000 should be used for imperative Liberian obligations, 125000 for the payment of Liberia's debt, and 335000 should be turned over to the Liberian Development Company for, quote, banking and road schemes in the Republic. This company was Johnston's Rubber Plantation in Liberia, where President Barclay, with the endorsement of his cabinet, acted as an advisor. As security for the loan, two British officials were appointed as inspectors for the Liberian customs. Within two years, most of the money entrusted to Harry Johnston's company had disappeared, and only a small part of the infrastructure work had been executed. The company indignantly declined to make an accounting for the money it had spent. When trying to negotiate a settlement, Johnston offered to sell the company to President Barclay for $500,000. Liberia secured the unused balance of 150000 but this was under the additional required conditions in the British government. Liberia should employ an additional three British customs officers and reorganize the frontier force under the command of British officers. Shortly after the new conditions were put in place, the British consul general and the British officer of the frontier force engineered a coup to annex Liberia to the territory of Sierra Leone, but this coup was unsuccessful. At the end of the second loan episode, the national debt of Liberia was over $1.2 million. Since the Berlin Conference of 1884-85, Germany had become increasingly commercially engaged with Liberia. As a solution to the second debt crisis, Germany presented the Lang Proposition, which would provide Liberia with a loan of 2 million marks to support the foreign and domestic obligations of the country. Germany required similar conditions of foreign receivership at the Liberian Customs. In contrast to the British loan, the Lang proposition suggested the loan is a joint venture of American, British, French, and German bankers, but this was rejected by the U.S. Around 1910, the rivalry for control of Liberia had sharpened. The secretary of the U.S. legation in Monrovia, George Ellis, notes that France and Britain had succeeded in absorbing substantial parts of Liberian territory. 
Also, Germany had established great trade and commercial centers along the Liberian coast and was exerting its diplomatic and financial influence on behalf of Liberian independence and sending more merchant ships to Liberian waters than any other European power. However, Great Britain and France are the dynamic factors in the Liberia situation. In 1909, the U.S. government sent a commission to Liberia to make a loan agreement with the government. Goals included paying off the debt to Britain, establishing American customs receivership, establishing a naval coaling station, and providing American aid for the training of the LFF. However, the State Department doubted if the Senate would approve the proposal and if U.S. intervention would cause Britain and other powers to withdraw from the territory. Therefore, in 1912, the U.S. government proposed to use, quote, private finance from a number of countries to establish outside control of Liberia. Under the leadership of the U.S. government, an international loan of $1.7 million was allocated to Liberia by American and European banking groups at the interest rate of 5%. This loan was predominantly created to pay off the existing debt, and the primary condition attached to the loan involved a general receiver and financial advisor to the Liberian government. Under the leadership of the general receiver, Britain, France, and Germany had designated receivers who were all responsible to their respective governments, and disagreement between the receivers, as well as between the receivers and the Liberian government, soon arose. Now also, in 1915, the Kru people, another uh, indigenous tribe in Liberia, rebelled against the government, which was the most serious uprising in Liberian history. The government suspected British complicity in the uprising, a suspicion that was supported by the appearance of the British warship HMS Highflyer in Liberian water in October 1915. Guanu states that from oral narrative research, it appears that Britain directly encouraged the crew to rebel. On October 19, 1915, Charge de Fer of the U.S. Legation of Monrovia, Richard C. Bundy, reported to U.S. Secretary of State Robert Lansing that the HMS Highflyer had arrived in Monrovia to offer Liberian government assistance to crew in crew disturbances. Lansing contacted the British government and expressed the concerns of the U.S. regarding British neutrality if HMS Highflyer remained in Liberian water more than 24 hours. The HMS Highflyer left on October 19th, and on November 8th, the warship USS Chester arrived in Monrovia. USS Chester provided arms and ammunition to the Liberian government, transported Liberian soldiers along the coast, and prevented direct British intervention. On December 15th, Liberian President Daniel Howard informed the legislature that a commission had been, quote, appointed to investigate and settle peacefully the questions between the crews and the government. Howard further noted... This revolt was initiated for the purpose of subverting, if possible, the government of Liberia, and that it is not without foreign sympathy and encouragement. If the crew had won this war, it was believed they would have placed themselves under British protection. The conflicts related to the loan agreements and the crew rebellion led the U.S. to make a shift in policy toward Liberia. In April 1917, U.S. Secretary of State Robert Lansing stated in a note to the American chief representative in Liberia, Minister Curtis, that the time has now arrived when this government, as next friend of Liberia, must insist upon a radical change of policy. 
the government of the United States can no longer be subjected to criticism from other foreign powers as regards the operation of the loan agreement and can no longer tolerate failure on the part of the Liberian government to institute and carry our necessary administrative reforms unless the Liberian government proceeds without delay to act upon the advice and suggestions herewith expressed, this government will be forced, regretfully, to withdraw the friendly support that historic and other considerations have hitherto prompted it to extend. These reforms included that the U.S. financial advisors should be involved in, quote, all matters directly or indirecting affecting the finances of the republic, external or internal. The general receiver should countersign all commercial permits and all permits involving large transactions, including the traffic of arms, and have full control of the budget of the Liberian Frontier Force, which remained under the command of the U.S. officers. It must be noted, uh, he says, that there are significant similarities with these reforms and the reforms imposed on Liberia by the U.S.-led United Nations Integrated Mission in 2003. So again, literally, ain't nothing new. The Liberian government began to implement these reforms, and in 1917, the U.S. government pressured them to declare war on Germany, which forced Germany to dismantle its wireless radio station and leave Liberia. In 1918, the British government made a new attempt to gain economic control over the Liberian government by proposing a loan of $15 million through the Bank of British West Africa. The agreement would terminate the 1912 loan and undertake a comprehensive reconstruction program under the leadership of officials appointed by the bank. The State Department, however, did not like this and... The acting Secretary of State said at the time that it is against the policy of this government at the present time to permit the state of Liberia to be forced into a position where she will be dominated or controlled by any European government or its agent. So they got in there and tried to offer uh, a more lucrative deal than the British or French could offer. Um, and this negotiation ultimately of a uh, a U.S. loan of $5 million resulted in an agreement signed by the Liberian government in 1920. In this agreement, the Liberian government accepted that its military and economic systems would be under the control of 13 American officials. Liberia's Secretary of State, Charles D.B. King, who accepted the agreement, wrote to President Howard, quote, We shall have to give America a free hand in our affairs and be prepared to make some sacrifice of what we have called our sovereign rights. We shall have to put up with some of the bitter drugs which may be found necessary to put us on our feet in a sound and healthful condition. However, when King, shortly after, became president of Liberia in 1920, he took a more critical position towards the U.S. The Liberian legislature saw the agreement as a violation of the Constitution and rejected the plan. In May 1920, the U.S. sent the warship USS Chattanooga to visit Monrovia, which according to the State Department was a visit quite beneficial to American prestige. At the same time, the Secretary of State, Frank Colby, telegraphed that if the Liberian government turned down the plan, the United States would have to, quote, reconsider its objections to the establishment of a mandate over Liberia. In 1922, the Liberian legislature reluctantly accepted the plan, as did the House of Representatives in Washington. However, the U.S. Senate rejected it. U.S. Senator William Borah was the primary opponent of the plan and stated he was, quote, not in favor of taking over Liberia and bringing her under our protection and control, establishing our authority upon the west coast of Africa, becoming a part of this imperial scheme of finance, which is now one of the curses which are leading the world into another war. Fair enough, Senator Borah. So this loan agreement was temporarily delayed, but that comes to the next sort of huge pivot point. Uh, 
in Liberia's history because the loan agreement got picked up again when Harvey Firestone Sr., the founder of you know Firestone Tires, in cooperation with the U.S. government, began to plan the establishment of the largest rubber plantation in the world. Brothers and friends, I'm going to play a tune. I want to play a tune that is called VIP. VIP means very important personality. Somebody, great man. But you see, these VIPs, when they get too rich, they do not want to see the ordinary man on the street who is poor. If you don't understand my language, I'm sorry, I can't help you. If you do not want to hear, other people want to hear. And it's the right of all human beings to respect other people's feelings. For me, I give them a name, VIP, means Vagabonds in Power. things is that uh, some of the earliest conceptions of uh, what would become Pan-Africanism developed from Liberia, particularly from uh, Edward Blyden, who emigrated from the Danish West Indies to Liberia in 1850 and was an extremely influential Pan-Africanist by the end of the 1800s. his ideas, uh, he believed uh, that Liberia was a land of liberty that could elevate the black race and uh, provide an example. And Leiden's ideals were a very strong influence uh, on both W.E.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey, who became two of the most significant Pan-African figures at the beginning of the 20th uh, century. Um, but again, reading from Han's book here, uh, however, the rivalry between Du Bois and Garvey caused a severe split in the Pan-African movement. Du Bois considered Garvey, quote, insane, and Garvey considered Du Bois, quote, a traitor to the race, a, quote, white man's N-word, and denounced his light skin color and his cooperation with the white American liberals in the founding of the NAACP. They both aimed at emancipating black people outside Africa through education and capitalism. Du Bois advocated for social advancement of black people through peaceful integration into the white capitalist system, while Garvey advocated, in arguments similar to Blyden's, for a black capitalist system in complete separation from the white race. For Garvey, Liberia was an outstanding example and model of separation. 
1920, Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association, UNIA, was the most significant and active Pan-African movement with more than 4 million members. UNIA owned restaurants and newspapers and had established the shipping company Black Star Line, the African Black Cross Nurses, Motor Corps, and the African Legion, whereas the latter was considered as its militant wing. All these assets were part of UNIA's grand plan for a pan-African project that would expand from Liberia. For Garvey, this was the, quote, central nation for the race, and the means to achieve the goal were, quote, capitalism and authoritarianism, where socialism and trade unionism represented anathemas. Garvey's race focus echoed Blyden's work, and the first UNIA delegation was warmly welcomed by President King when it arrived in Liberia in 1920. UNIA was concerned about U.S. economic control of Liberia, and Garvey had expressed that we of the UNIA have a solemn duty to free Liberia of any debt that she owes to any white government. The idea was to raise $2 million for Liberia's development. This would have contributed to paying off the debt and finance construction of roads, a small railway, and a shipping service. In January 1921, the Liberian legislature incorporated UNIA, and when the second uh, delegation arrived in Monrovia in March, they were informed by acting president Edwin Barclay that Liberia would be happy to host a large UNIA settlement and headquarters as land had previously been set aside for this purpose. The third delegation arrived in 1923 to get final agreements in place for the arrival of the first 500 settlers. However, when the final team of experts arrived in 1924 to prepare for the reception of the settlers, they were all detained by the Liberian authorities and in July, deported. Six months later, the Liberian legislature ratified the exclusion of UNIA upon request of President King, which marked the end of UNIA in Liberia. There are many different views regarding why UNIA fell out of favor with the government, partly based on reports from the French Charge d'Affaires in Monrovia and the U.S. government. Sundiata argues that it was not external pressure that led to the rejection of UNIA in Liberia, Quote, but because key members of the Liberian political class opposed it from the outset. This argument, however, is not valid because UNIA was not per se a threat to the ruling elite in Liberia, and also because the political power of UNIA was subordinated to the government. The father-in-law of President King and mayor of Monrovia, Gabriel Johnson, was elected potentate head of the UNIA in 1920, Furthermore, the government had established well-structured committees to deal with the arrival of the UNIA, where the Liberian elite were in control of the process and not them. UNIA provided an alternative to the Liberian debt burden. This is because they had more than 4 million members in the U.S. and money could have been raised to pay off the loans, which would make the U.S. receivers and military advisors in Liberia redundant. UNIA could have united the Pan-African movement in the United States with the government of Liberia. This could have transformed Liberia into a platform from which the Pan-African movement could have encouraged anti-colonial race wars in the neighboring British and French colonies. At a meeting with the UNIA delegation in Liberia in March 1921, President Barclay stated that the British and the French had expressed concerns about a UNIA threat to the neighboring colonies and inquired about the Liberian attitude towards the movement. At that meeting, Barclay informed the UNIA that, quote, there isn't a Negro in the world, if given the opportunity and the power to do certain things, will not do them. But it is not always advisable nor political to openly expose our secret intentions, our secret thoughts. That is the way we do, or rather don't do, in Liberia. We don't tell them what we think. We only tell them what we like them to hear, what in fact they like to hear. 
In line with this statement, Barclay wrote three months later to the British consul that Mr. Marcus Garvey's movements and activities are of no practical interest to this government as they have not given and will not give endorsement to his fantastic schemes. This is followed by a statement from President King in an open letter where he stated that Liberia would, under no circumstances, allow her territory to be made a center of aggression or conspiracy against other sovereign states. Prior to 1924, UNIA delegations had been welcomed by the government. March 1924 was the first change in Liberian policy toward the UNIA, which was apparent when President King suddenly refused to meet with their delegation. King's actions were applauded by the U.S. Secretary of State, Charles Hughes, and in 1925, President King received praises from the British governor for, quote, slamming the door on spurious patriots from across the Atlantic, men who sought to make Liberia a focus for racial animosity on this continent. As UNIA had prepared to move to Liberia in the early 1920s, the FBI had worked on how to disband UNIA permanently. The head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, considered Garvey, quote, a notorious Negro agitator and stated that he would, he would expedite, quote, prosecution in order that he, Garvey, may be once and for all put where he can peruse his past activities behind the four walls in the Atlanta climb. In the summer of 1923, Garvey was found guilty of mail fraud in New York federal court after a long struggle in the court system and was sentenced to five years in prison. UNIA fell victim to factionalism and lost its cohesion, and many members began to look to Ethiopia as a proposed land of freedom. But there was something else going on in Liberia in 1923 and 1924 that W.E.B. Du Bois happened to be intimately involved in. So... Continuing, concurrent with Garvey's UNIA expulsion from Liberia, Firestone Rubber Company arrived with the support of W.E.B. Du Bois. In 1923 and 1924, Du Bois was instrumental in establishing contacts between Firestone and the Liberian government under the quasi-authority of the U.S. government. According to Robinson, Du Bois was, quote, blinded by the elitism characteristic of his own petty bourgeois class, which is why he failed to see how the Firestone Project would exploit the indigenous population in Liberia. Du Bois later stated that, quote, he had not then lost faith in the capitalistic system and believed that it was possible for a great corporation headed by a man of vision to go into a country with something more than the mere ideal of profit. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we all grow. Okay, so this, this is where things start to get... Uh, interesting in terms of the geostrategic uh, economic uh, importance of Liberia to the U.S. The political economy of Firestone's project in Liberia related to the U.S. government's goal to break the British rubber monopoly. By 1922, Britain controlled around 75% of the rubber production in comparison with to the U.S.'s 2.8%. The United States consumed 72% of all rubber produced, which made U.S. industry overly dependent on British rubber. In October 1922, Churchill launched the Stevenson Restriction Act that was aimed at enhancing British control over rubber production and prices. This drove the U.S. Department of Commerce to undertake studies on how to secure adequate control over the rubber needed by U.S. industries by establishing rubber plantations in, quote, territories under the American flag or subject to American control. Firestone explored four areas for rubber production in the first half of the 1920s, in Liberia, Mexico, the Philippines, and Sarawak. The Philippines, a U.S. colony, was struggling for independence, and Firestone could not ensure protection of its property. 
Firestone leased a rubber estate in Mexico, but it was abandoned after a year because of unsettled political conditions and an inadequate labor force. Next, an attempt to establish a plantation in Sarawak was abandoned after pressure from the British government. After these failures, Liberia was identified as the most promising place for a large-scale rubber plantation. This was easily established due to the special relationship between the U.S. and Liberia. Furthermore, the Mount Barclay Plantation, which included 2,000 acres of rubber plantation established by a British company in 1910, but later abandoned because of financial problems, produced exceptionally positive yield tests. Negotiations between Firestone and the government of Liberia were opened in 1924 with the arrival of Du Bois, a U.S. minister, and a Firestone rubber expert. U.S. Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover made it clear these negotiations were, quote, an important factor in the administration program for combating the high price of crude rubber due to British export restrictions. On June 5, 1924, the first of three agreements was signed between Firestone and the government of Liberia. The first agreement provided Firestone with the rights to exploit the Mount Barclay plantation for 99 years at a rent of $1 per acre the first year and afterward for a fixed rent of $6,000 per year. The second agreement provided a 99-year lease of 1 million acres for the development of a new rubber plantation. The third agreement detailed establishing infrastructure, such as roads and ports. Firestone proposed that his investment should be made contingent on a loan from the U.S. government for the amount of $5 million, which would build up the underlying infrastructure and replace Liberia's existing non-U.S. loans. This would help eliminate the non-American foreign influence. The U.S. Congress, however, did not support the loan, and Firestone prepared a private loan by setting up a subsidiary called the Finance Corporation of America. This subsidiary provided the loan with the support of the National City Bank of New York. The Liberian legislature felt uncomfortable with the Firestone agreements, which they saw as a loss of sovereignty. As the negotiations became increasingly complicated, Firestone wrote the Department of State, that the government of Liberia, quote, must accept the agreements without a single change if we go into Liberia. The U.S. government pressured Liberia to accept Firestone's terms for the rubber concession and the loan agreements. The Liberian government was involved in a new border dispute with France and feared if they refused the Firestone contract, the U.S. would withdraw its support for Liberia in this dispute. In January 1926, all the concession agreements were adopted by an act of the legislature in December 1926, the loan agreement was approved and became effective in July 1927. The new loan of $5 million at 7% over 40 years paid off the international loan of 1912. European receivers were replaced by eight U.S. officials headed by a financial advisor designated by the President of the United States. The loan agreement further stipulated that the strength of the frontier force shall be fixed by agreement between the President of Liberia and the financial advisor and it shall not be increased or decreased in number without the agreement of the financial advisor. Moreover, an officer of American nationality shall be employed for the government by the president of Liberia, who shall report directly to the president of Liberia. This officer shall be senior in rank to the commanding officer of the said frontier force. In addition, the agreement provided for the construction of a port in Monrovia, paid by the Liberian government. The Firestone Agreement made the French government withdraw its threats of annexing the hinterland of Liberia because Firestone would begin cultivation of rubber throughout the interior. However, as the Liberian government finally escaped European encroachment, they now found themselves completely controlled by the United States. And 
Before we go any further with Firestone, it is worth noting that the founder of the company and uh, the president at the time was Harvey S. Firestone. Now, Harvey Firestone Sr. was very good friends with both Thomas Edison and Henry Ford, who were generally considered the three leaders in American industry at the time. They often worked in vacation together and called themselves the Vagabonds, along with naturalist John Burroughs and sometimes the aforementioned President Herbert Hoover. Now, I did have to check and I couldn't find any direct evidence that Harvey Firestone was a member of Bohemian Grove, but his son, who inherited uh, the presidency of the Firestone Company, Leonard Firestone and also Harvey Firestone Jr. were confirmed members of Bohemian Grove. So just keep that in mind. Also consider the politics of his best friend Henry Ford um, and his close ideological uh, friendship with uh, the government of Nazi Germany just to give you a general sense of... uh, how much benevolence Firestone was coming to Liberia with. So, the tensions between the government of Liberia and Firestone increased in the following years and eventually resulted in a major crisis over the inadequate supply of labor Firestone needed. Initially, Firestone had estimated an investment of $100 for the rubber plantation for an annual production of 200,000 tons of rubber, which would be about half the world's output. In order to reach these goals... Firestone expected to employ around 350,000 workers, which Buell considered utterly unrealistic. Firestone estimated that Liberia had an indigenous labor supply that was almost inexhaustible, with an estimated total population of 2 million. However, it would not be possible to utilize the total number of workers needed for the land. To meet demand, Firestone had to develop a system of forced labor analogous to slavery in order to meet the number of workers needed for the required labor force. Forced recruitment of labor had existed in Liberia for decades based on agreements between the government and local chiefs. The labor was exported to other colonies, and in 1922, the government renewed and expanded recruitment agreements with planters from the Spanish colony, Fernando Po. Between 1919 and 1926, the number of workers recruited from Fernando Po was 4,268. The LFF was used to support the recruitment and safeguard the export of labor to English, German, Spanish, and Portuguese colonies. In 1927, the U.S. legation in Monrovia reported that, quote, Firestone is experiencing some difficulty in recruiting labor, and the American financial advisor noted that the rubber industry here will be in active competition with Fernando Poe for a supply of labor, unless some powerful influence is brought to bear that will separate, by compulsion, the traffic from actual government support. According to the Firestone Planting Agreement of 1926, the government of Liberia agreed that, quote, it will encourage, support, and assist the efforts of the lessee to secure and maintain an adequate labor supply. Despite this agreement, it was more profitable to export labor to Fernando Po, and this created tensions between Firestone and the government. By 1928, relations between the government of Liberia and the U.S. were de facto suspended. Firestone accused the Liberian government of obstructing the development of the project, 
and Liberian government accused Firestone of dominating a sovereign nation. The U.S. government took the labor crisis very seriously and accused Spanish planters of using forced labor in Fernando Po at the, at the 1929 International Labor Conference in Geneva. Firestone was already using forced labor in Liberia because, as Buell notes, quote, as long as the Firestone company makes it financially profitable for the chiefs to supply labor, the available men must work whether they like it or not. However, Firestone's problem of sufficient labor was immense. By 1930, Firestone had only recruited 18,000 workers and had cultivated less than 60,000 acres. So then something happens which definitely echoes the way the U.S. government would apply pressure to Liberia in the 20th and the 21st century by singling out Liberia as a violator of human rights but in a way that is uh, almost gallingly self-serving. So on June 8th, 1929, the U.S. government accused the government of Liberia of endorsing slavery and the slave trade in Fernando Po, which was a direct violation of the League of Nations Slavery Convention of 1926. The U.S. government ordered the slave systems to be eradicated and advocated that many high officials in the government of Liberia should be removed from office. Additionally, the U.S. government stated that the Liberian government should submit to an inquiry by the League of Nations to assess the extent of slavery and slave trade in Liberia. The U.S. government had not yet ratified the Slavery Convention of 1926, and Britain had just abolished domestic slavery in neighboring Sierra Leone. However, world public opinion had turned against slave labor and forced labor, which was ultimately expressed in the International Labor Organization's Forced Labor Convention of 1930. As is demonstrated by the following section, the accusation of slavery and slave trade became a useful tool to undermine the legitimacy of the Liberian government. Eventually, it resulted in a regime change and redirected the labor supply from Fernando Po to Firestone's plantation. The accusations of slavery and slave trade in Liberia led to the establishment of the League of Nations International Commission of Inquiry into the existence of slavery and forced labor in the Republic of Liberia. Initially, Belgium, Portugal, Spain, and France objected to the idea of an investigation because it would have created a dangerous precedent for other parts of Africa. The commission was carefully put together with a representative from Britain, Liberia, and the U.S., the U.S. chose as its representative a black scholar, Dr. Charles S. Johnson, who was a race relations researcher and was the head of the Department of Sociology at Fisk University. Johnson consulted with U.S. officials for two months before traveling to Liberia in 1930. This culminated in the 1930 report of the International Commission of Inquiry into the Existence of Slavery and Forced Labor in the Republic of Liberia. The report did not find the presence of slavery and slave trade in Liberia, However, it did find pawning in the hinterland. Pawning is defined as an arrangement by which, in return for money, a human being, usually a child relative, may be given in servitude for an indefinite period without compensation to the person held and without privilege. It also found a demoralizing, wasteful use of labor in road construction projects as well as identified key government officials who would connive the forcible export of labor. The commission recommended that Liberia abandon its closed-door policy 
in order to encourage foreign investment, reestablish the authority of the chiefs, appoint more Americans to administrative positions in the government, declare domestic slavery and pawning illegal, cease the shipment of laborers to Fernando Po and other foreign places, increase discipline over military forces, and encourage African-American immigration. U.S. Secretary Henry L. Stimson informed Liberia's President King that he was, quote, profoundly shocked by the findings of the Commission on Liberia and demanded immediate reforms. On the 17th of November, 1930, Stimson sent a message to the, the Liberian government stating that, quote, unless there is instituted by the Liberian government a comprehensive system of reforms, loyally and sincerely put into effect, it will result in the final alienation of the friendly feelings which the American government and people have entertained for Liberia since, since its establishment nearly a century ago. In December 1930, U.S. pressure led President King and many other officials to resign. Secretary of State Edwin Barclay became acting president and was subsequently elected the president in 1931. However, the U.S. made their establishment of the Barclay administration dependent upon the attitude taken by Liberia toward the report of the International Commission. Barclay declared, quote, he would not surrender Liberia's independence in accepting outside assistance, but enacted laws prohibiting the export of labor and pawning. The British, French, and U.S. then accused the Liberian government of having, quote, massacred hundreds of crew people in order to stop them from providing testimony to the International Commission, although there was not any evidence of a massacre. During the commission's investigation, many crew people also believed rumors that the white man would have the opportunity to, quote, take over Liberia and abolish the unpopular taxes imposed on the crew people by the Liberian government. These rumors made the crew people revolt in favor of such a takeover. In January 1931, a new committee was established by the League of Nations. The goal was to develop a plan for assisting Liberia and would establish temporary control of Liberia by the League. This was known as the Bruno Commission, was led by the French representative, Charles Bruno, and assisted by Theodorus Ligthart, a financial expert from Holland, and Dr. Melville D. Mackenzie, a medical expert from Britain. So basically, the final version of this report pointed out some of the inequities in the Firestone lease and uh, recommended that some of the terms be renegotiated uh, with the assistance of some League of Nations experts. And uh, unsurprisingly, the U.S. representative in Geneva objected to the recommendations because they were, quote, thoroughly unworkable and impractical. Harvey Firestone had proposed another plan to the League, which would be administered by a high-powered American commissioner. The U.S., agreed with Firestone's plan, but the Liberian government fiercely rejected any attempt to transmute Liberia into an official trusteeship of the U.S. And tensions between the Liberians and the U.S. reached a point where official and unofficial diplomatic relations ceased. President Hoover sent the Judge Advocate General of the U.S. Army, Major General Blanton Winship, to Monrovia with the aim of restoring relations between the two governments. Harvey Firestone, on the other hand, advocated for a regime change in Liberia and informed the new Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, that the only viable solution was U.S. armed intervention in Liberia. Firestone further advocated to the State Department the possibilities of executing an internal coup in Liberia with the encouragement of the U.S., 
But the U.S. State Department rejected his proposal because, quote, to encourage a revolutionary body would be to incur a frightful responsibility if it failed to work out. So eventually, Liberia is pressured into accepting uh, an agreement brokered by the U.S. government. They did renegotiate, but on terms extremely favorable to Firestone. So the Firestone Plantation was finally opened for tapping of rubber in 1934. And after the labor dispute with the government, Firestone gradually co-opted many members of the Liberian ruling elite by encouraging them to become petty rubber producers. Firestone did so by providing the rubber trees and technical assistance to establish small rubber plantations on the land owned by the Liberian elite and by purchasing the rubber they produced. In this way, it was in the interest of the ruling elite to keep labor costs low and to keep the workers divided along ethnic and religious lines to limit the risk of organized labor uprisings. With the assistance of Western anthropologists, the local knowledge of the Liberian elite, and the legislative and executive power of the Liberian government, Firestone established a system which divided labor along the lines of ethnicity, language, religion, and gender in order to complicate any unification of workers. This was done through simple methods such as recruiting most drivers from one ethnic group, security guards from another ethnic group, administrative staff from a third ethnic group, and tappers from a fourth group. Workers from different ethnic groups were displaced from their homeland and sent to live in housing units inside the Firestone Plantation, which were also subdivided along ethnic lines. The central principle was to exploit old conflicts between different ethnic groups and keep them divided so they would not form a united front against Firestone in demand for higher wages and better living standards. When conflicts among the workers and between the divided social groups became too intense, they were settled internally by the application of Firestone's private militia force in cooperation with the police and the LFF. As the Liberian government became more compliant with the financial interests of Firestone and the labor crisis was settled, a treaty of friendship, commerce, and navigation was signed between Liberia and the U.S. government in 1938. This treaty allowed expanded access for U.S. economic and cultural penetration. The treaty allowed nationals of each country to enter, travel, and reside in territories of the other and to engage within the parameter of national law in professional, scientific, religious, philanthropic, manufacturing, and commercial work of every kind without interference. Furthermore, the treaty ensured limited taxation on foreign investments, optimal protection of property rights, and freedom of commerce and navigation. This, in turn, allowed the high contracting parties to come with their vessels and cargoes to all places, ports, and waters of every kind within the territorial limits of the other. When the Second World War broke out, Liberia declared its neutrality while accepting expert U.S. assessment in Liberia and establishing military bases. The Air Navigation Agreement of, in 1939 gave special privileges to U.S. aircraft in Liberia and was followed by the Defense Areas Agreement in 1942. This agreement expanded U.S. military facilities and presence in Liberia and gave the U.S. government the, quote, exclusive jurisdiction over any such airports and defense areas in Liberia and over the military and civilian personnel of the government of the U.S. Furthermore, it allowed U.S. personnel, military goods, equipment, and construction material to move freely without being submitted to customs, duties, taxes, or any other charges. Early in 1942, 
Detachments of black American service members and engineer troops arrived in Liberia to identify an appropriate site for an airbase. The location chosen was adjacent to the main entrance of the Firestone Rubber Plantation, and the construction contract was awarded to the Firestone Corporation. This airbase became central to the U.S. transatlantic string of bases, and with the buildup of American troops in Liberia, it was not possible for Liberia to claim neutrality. In July 1942, the government expelled all German citizens from Liberia upon a request from the U.S. Then, in June 1943, the Defense Areas Agreement was expanded. Then there was an agreement at the end of 1943 that allowed for a U.S.-based private company to construct a port financed by a loan granted by, to the Liberian government by the U.S., the port would be operated by private U.S.-based companies and granted to the U.S. the right to establish, use, maintain, improve, supplement, guard, and control in part or their entirety naval, air, and military facilities and installations at the site of the port and in the general vicinity thereof, as may be desired by the government of the United States of America for the protection of the strategic interests of the United States of America in the South Atlantic. According to the agreements, the military air base and seaport should be open for commercial use, but also be available for the U.S. military immediately upon request. By the end of the Second World War, Liberia had become a strategic military base from which U.S. interests could be projected further into Africa. Tongman is the right man. Composed, played, and sung by Melinda Jackson Parker. Thank you. 
1943, the U.S. supervised the Liberian general election, which brought to power preferred U.S. candidate William Tubman. He previously worked as a lawyer for Firestone and served as associate justice on the Liberian Supreme Court. Tubman became the most U.S.-friendly president in Liberia's history. For the next 27 years, Tubman was able to suppress any opposition to his regime due to U.S. support of his leadership. World War II changed the global balance of power, and colonial empires in Africa began to disintegrate. As the main U.S. foothold in Africa, the strategic importance of Liberia increased, and the government of Liberia became a crucial ally in projecting U.S. power into Africa. President Tubman's speeches from 1944 to 1971 reflect a Wilsonian notion of self-determination, and his policies can be summarized as supporting African independence from the European colonial powers and promoting liberal capitalism across the African continent. The guiding policy for Liberia's national development was the expansion of the open-door policy, where the guiding principle was that the government should provide the necessary infrastructure and a climate favorable to foreign investors, and where the private sector should be responsible for the direct economic activity in the economy. Tubman's open-door policy did create economic growth and is often described in the literature as progressive and successful, with Liberia surging ahead of other African states and economic growth indexes. However, a more thorough study of the open-door policy provided by Clower and others details that wealth was concentrated in a small group of the elite and enhanced the income gap between rich and poor. There was little investment in social development and infrastructure, as reflected in the title of their book, Growth Without Development. The open-door policy provided an opportunity for foreign companies to optimize the exploitation of Liberia's natural resources while keeping wages low. It attracted foreign companies to the mining industry, in particular iron ore, which made Liberia one of the largest iron ore exporters in the world. The liberal policies in Liberia were facilitated by U.S. officials in combination with private investors, which is perhaps best reflected in the setup of the corporate offshore registration system in Monrovia. The main architect behind this system was Edward R. Statinius Jr., who had been in influential positions with General Motors and U.S. Steel before he became Undersecretary of State in 1943 and afterwards Secretary of State under President Roosevelt. In cooperation with a few U.S. oil companies, U.S. government officials, and the Central Intelligence Agency, Statinius and key aides wrote the Liberian Maritime Code. It was promoted in non-profit humanitarian terms that would facilitate development in Liberia, and Statinius expressed that if the system failed, quote, communism, already at work in Africa, would rejoice. I, I bet they would, actually. After the Liberian Maritime Code had been approved by Standard Oil, it was approved by the Liberian legislature in November 1948 and signed into law by Tubman the following month. And that's still around, by the way. Uh, the Li Liberia is the, I believe, still the largest flag of convenience, essentially the Delaware of uh, international shipping, where you can register your ship with the government of Liberia and their maritime registry, no questions asked, no background check, uh, etc. And that definitely augurs uh, things to come. So then the Cold War begins, and William Tubman pledges the Liberian government uh, to stand up against communist encroachment and uh, becomes uh, 
a very staunch Cold War ally of the U.S. And in return, they were the recipient of some aid. But like so much international aid, and particularly uh, U.S. aid, literally, it looked really good on the surface, but actually masked a more nefarious intent. And this is actually going to literally kind of explode. This is going to be an aspect of uh, disruption in Liberia that uh, is going to be exploited to very nefarious effect uh, decades down the line. But Liberia was among one of the first countries to receive U.S. subsidized rice under the Agricultural Trade Development Assistance Act. This was signed into law by... President Eisenhower in 1954 with the statement that the law laid the basis for a permanent expansion of our exports of agricultural products with lasting benefits to ourselves and peoples of other lands. Eisenhower emphasized that in relation to the U.S. quote farm surplus problems that food can be a powerful instrument in building a durable peace and emphasized that the U.S.'s abundance of agricultural products should be utilized in the interest of reinforcing peace and the well-being of friendly peoples throughout the world. In short, using food for peace. And food for peace is exactly what this program, uh, PL-480, became known under President Kennedy. But, but, I mean, free, free rice. Who could disagree that that's a wonderful thing, right? But... In contrast to this positive notion, PL-480 created problems for many of the Liberian rice farmers. Rice had for centuries been the staple food source in Liberia, and surplus from the local rice production was traded on the local market and along the coast. This gradually changed in the 1900s, when German companies began to import cheap rice into Liberia, which enabled Liberian peasants from the rice farms to instead become wage laborers. Since 1926, Firestone had been the prime impetus for the development and expansion of the wage labor system in Liberia, but it met resistance from local peasants, who were reluctant to stop cultivating their land in order to become food-dependent wage workers for foreign companies. The problem of labor shortage, as experienced in the late 1920s, continued in the 50s and 60s with expansions of the Firestone Plantation and the establishment of additional rubber plantations such as Goodrich, the African Fruit Company, and the Liberia Company. This put pressure on the existing wage system. As referenced previously, the recruitment technique was again predominantly, quote, involuntary labor recruitment under government auspices, but this method was very similar to slavery. This type of recruitment created a number of labor uprisings in the plantations, which were contained by the police and military force. The importation of inexpensive food into Liberia under PL-480 allowed Firestone to reallocate farmers who were working the land to become wage laborers at Firestone and other companies in Liberia. Rice imports increased from 19 million pounds in 1955 to 119 million pounds in 1971, while local production decreased by 20% in the 1950s, with an output of 225 million pounds in 1971. Firestone imported low-cost, American-produced rice subsidized by the U.S. through the Food for Peace program to feed its wage laborers as partial payment and then deposited the surplus rice into the local market. Rice prices were manipulated so local rice farmers would earn less than the basic daily wage at Firestone. 
and this is wild, but it was also accompanied by massive advertisement campaigns via radio, which turned many Liberians against their own homegrown rice by denouncing it as that country rice, while instead favoring parboiled rice from the United States. So, yeah, they psyoped everybody into not appreciating their own country rice and buying rice from the United States, like, sicko Monsanto shit, right? (sighs) Anyways... As the rice market became unattractive to local rice producers, Firestone assisted by transforming their fields into rubber plantations. This was done by providing free rubber seedlings to independent growers and technical advice in connection with the development of their plantations, which was similar to how Firestone had converted many key government officials into rubber producers after the labor crisis in the 1930s. By 1967, There were nearly 4,000 Liberian rubber producers, and among the largest producers were politicians such as William Tubman, who owned 1,600 acres, and Vice President William Tolbert, who owned 600 acres. Liberian government officials ensured a low-wage and disciplined labor force since it benefited them directly. For example, when the plantation workers went on strike in 1963, Firestone stopped purchasing rubber from the Liberian petty bourgeoisie, who were therefore motivated to quickly quell the strike. When the PL-480 program was first introduced, Liberia only imported a small percentage of the rice consumed in the country. In 1970, more than one-third of the rice was imported from the U.S., and many Liberian intellectuals and government officials began to see PL-480 as problematic because it created a situation where Liberia was dependent on imported food and foreign aid. Liberia became very vulnerable to changes in the prices of rice, and minor fluctuations could spark civil unrest. This was most clearly evident at the Rice Riot in 1979, which the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Liberia considered as marking the beginning of more than two decades of conflict and war. People who were influenced by the Pan-African movement, such as Kwame Nkrumah and Marxism, also saw PL-480 as a form of primitive accumulation which helped foreign corporations transform peasants into wage laborers by destroying the local food production and market. In this manner, a larger and more disciplined labor force was created that had to sell their labor power to foreign corporations in order to survive. final section, which, if it isn't clear already, should make perfectly clear the geostrategic importance of Liberia to the U.S. during the Cold War. So this section is called Countering Socialism and Pan-Africanism. The Fifth Pan-African Conference took place in Manchester in October 1945, one year after Tubman had come to power, and was convened by W.B. Du Bois and organized by Peter Milliard, George Padmore, Kwame Nkrumah, Peter Abrahams, and Jomo Kenyatta. This conference marked the beginnings of an organized, socialist-oriented Pan-African movement, and in contrast to the previous Pan-African conferences that were dominated by a small intellectual elite, 
This conference consisted of more than 200 delegates representing political organizations, trade unions, and civil society organizations. The conference was dominated by socialist consciousness, and it condemned the, quote, monopoly of capital and the rule of private wealth and industry for private profit. The U.S. government considered the growing global socialist movements as a major threat to capitalism and took significant actions after World War II. In 1947, the U.S. launched a new global anti-communist policy, which became known as the Second Red Scare, or McCarthyism. This policy was interlinked with the global fight against socialism and, combined with the Congress for Cultural Freedom run by the CIA, which established more than 20 prestigious magazines, news and feature services, and high-profile international conferences, had the goal of nudging intellectuals away from Marxism. George Kennan became the chief architect behind Truman's National Security Council Directive NSC-4 in 1947, which together with Directive NSC 10-2 marks a departure in American history because they created the semi-autonomous Office of Policy Coordination in the CIA and directed the CIA to conduct covert rather than merely psychological operations, or PSYOPs. This was defined as operations that are conducted or sponsored by the U.S. government, quote, against hostile foreign states or groups or in support of friendly foreign states or groups, but which are so planned and executed that any U.S. government responsibility for them is not evident to unauthorized persons, and that if uncovered, the U.S. government can plausibly disclaim any responsibility for them. Specifically, such operations shall include any covert activities related to propaganda, economic warfare, preventive direct action, including sabotage, demolition, and evacuation measures, subversion against hostile states, including assistance to underground resistance movements, guerrillas, and refugee liberation groups, and support of indigenous anti-communist elements in threatened countries of the free world. Within three years, the OPC budget had increased to 82 million and employed close to 3,000 people. In 1950, the NSC had completed a top-secret draft of NSC-68 to expand the program, and the office built a permanent covert action structure that grew even faster than its creators and administrators had envisioned. Liberia became a frontline country for the U.S. in the fight against socialism in Africa. Tubman banned all leftist literature in Liberia, and his administration applied its repressive security networks, the National Intelligence and Security Service, National Bureau of Investigation, Special Security System, Executive Action Bureau, and the public relations officers to spy on citizens and infiltrate any social groups with left-wing or pan-African tendencies. The Liberian intelligence community was interconnected with the CIA, which had established its largest African base in Liberia. The textbooks in the education system were American textbooks, and many of the courses offered at the University of Liberia were established and taught by American expatriates, who selected the most pro-American students for scholarships in the U.S. However, pan-African socialist ideas still influenced, Afri still influenced Liberian intellectuals and politicians, and on several occasions, the police raided the university and arrested academic staff and students who were suspected of socialist tendencies. Liberia was among the first countries to receive expatriates from the American Peace Corps shortly after it was established by the U.S. government in 1961. When the Peace Corps was introduced by President Kennedy, he emphasized that the Peace Corps was, quote, not designed as a weapon of propaganda or designed as a tool in the Cold War. However, in Liberia, most of the Peace Corps volunteers had strong anti-socialist positions, which they projected into the education system. 
Also, the United States Information Agency, the USIA, established the largest Voice of America facility in Africa with six 250,000-watt transmitters and two 50,000-watt transmitters. The expansion of the VOA was a strategic component of propaganda for the Cold War, where American stations could neutralize and eventually defeat Radio Moscow in the crucial war for the control of mines. The Food for Peace program, the Peace Corps, VOA, and other U.S. initiatives in Liberia were presented as altruistic aid from the American people, and it was difficult for many Liberian intellectuals and politicians to understand the underlying political and economic interests. A similar confusion about aid and interest existed in the U.S., which made one of the most influential international relations theorists, Hans Morgenthau, publish the article A Political Theory on Foreign Aid in 1962. Morgenthau notes that the underlying politics of foreign aid has become so well disguised in the post-World War II era that it has become difficult for most politicians in the U.S. Congress to understand the real intentions of foreign aid. He, therefore, reminds that, quote, what goes by the name of foreign aid today is in the nature of bribes, which appear in the guise of aid for economic development. Foreign aid has, quote, as actively and successfully participated in the semi-colonial exploitation of backward nations and is frequently suspect as serving in disguise the traditional ends of colonialism by the recipients. Foreign aid is no different from diplomatic or military policy or propaganda. They are all weapons in the political armory of the nation. As Liberia became a strategic country for the U.S. in the Cold War, Tubman's administration became instrumental in combating the Pan-African movement outside Liberia. <clears throat> which gradually had transmuted into a socialist movement. This transformation accelerated in March 1957, when the Gold Coast achieved independence. The struggle was headed by the Conventional People's Party, CPP, and administered by Kwame Nkrumah, whom the opponents considered, quote, a dangerous communist conspiracy. Nkrumah became the first president of the Republic of Ghana, and the country became the main center for the promotion of socialist pan-Africanism, with a commitment to actively support the liberation struggle of all Africans. This was based on Nkrumah's notion that Ghana's, quote, independence is meaningless unless it is linked up with the total liberation of the African continent. In October 1958, Guinea became the first African state to achieve independence from France under the leadership of Ahmed Sekou Touré. As the only former French colony in Africa, Guinea rejected Charles de Gaulle's offer to become part of a Franco-African community. This was expressed in a public speech by Sekou Touré, who said that Guinea prefers freedom and poverty to prosperity in chains. Guinea's rejection of the French Commonwealth resulted in complete French withdrawal from Guinea, and the French administrators stripped the public buildings of items such as wall telephones and file cabinets, which left the new government in a chaotic situation. In November 1958, Ghana and Guinea entered into the Ghana-Guinea Union in an attempt to start the unification process by setting up an embryo organization which other states could join as and when they wished. This led to the formation of the All-African People's Conference, the AAPC, which eventually morphed into the Organization of African Unity, the OAU, in 1963. At the first conference, Nkrumah pointed out four main stages of Pan-Africanism, national independence, national consolidation, transnational unity and community, and economic and social reconstruction on the principles of scientific socialism. 
The final resolution of the conference states that, quote, the imperialists are now coordinating their activities by forming military and economic pacts, such as NATO, European Common Market, Free Trade Area, with the aim of strengthening their imperialist activities in Africa and elsewhere. Also, the conference declared its full support to all fighters for freedom in Africa and condemned all legislators who considered those who fight for their independence and freedom as ordinary criminals. It was further decided to institutionalize the struggle for African independence by establishing a permanent secretariat in Accra with the aim of coordinating the national liberation movements in Africa. George Padmore became the first general secretary of the secretariat, and after his death in 1959, he was succeeded by Abdoulaye Diallo, the former trade union leader in French West Africa. Ghana and Guinea began to host and train soldiers from all over Africa who were willing to participate in the liberation struggle and sent military support to countries such as Congo and Algeria. Personal relations between the state leaders were crucial for the organization of the liberation struggle. It provided them certain flexibility for maneuvering and for restructuring the Pan-African movement, which had moved beyond the issue of color and had joined forces with the North African countries. Nkrumah and Touré were aware that the government of Liberia, under the leadership of President Tubman, was under the control of the U.S., and that it could, therefore, be a severe obstacle to the Pan-African project. Therefore, they arranged for an official meeting with Tubman, with the goal of wresting him out of the hands of the Americans. This resulted in the Sanaquelli Conference, which took place in Liberia in 1959, between the leaders of Ghana, Guinea, and Liberia. In a speech at the conference, Tubman made his vision on African unity clear. It should be a formula that would be, quote, sufficiently flexible for each nation to maintain its national sovereignty. Sufficiently flexible for each nation to maintain its national sovereignty. The Sanaquelli Conference resulted in the Declaration of Principles on the Community of Indo Independent African States, which aimed at strengthening the cooperation between the independent African states as an economic, cultural, and social organization. However, it failed to move toward a united Africa. The most radical clause in the declaration states that, quote, its main objective will be to help other African territories subjected to domination with a view to accelerating the end of their non-independent status. Libano notes that this meeting is one of the landmarks in the history of the Pan-African movement because Tubman, quote, effectively undermined the Nkrumah approach and in the process loosened the bonds between Touré and the Ghanaian leader. However, Asante recalls that the meeting in Sanaquelli confirmed Nkrumah's and Touré's fear that Liberia was so firmly subjugated to U.S. power that it could make Liberia a frontline state against a socialist united Africa. Eastman states that he, as Secretary of State, and Tubman were so closely aligned with the policies of the U.S. that it was natural for the Liberian government to oppose Nkrumah's and Touré's socialist pan-African vision. Six months later... The second All-African People's Conference took place in Tunis. It was attended by approximately 180 delegates from about 30 African countries. This conference was predominantly concerned with new forms of imperialism exerted by the French community and other European imperial powers, and expressed its full support for the Greater Somali Movement and the National Liberation Front in Algeria. The conference asked for intensification in the struggle against colonialism and called for a corps of all African volunteers to support and fight with the FLN in Algeria. Congo declared independence in June 1960, six months after the second AAPC, with Patrice Lumumba as its first prime minister. 
The Ghanaian government immediately assisted Lumumba by, by deploying military forces to Congo in mid-July. In August, Nkrumah and Lumumba signed a secret agreement between Ghana and the Congo, which committed the two countries to seek national public support for the establishment of a union of African states as the solution to block Western imperialism. However, in the following month, the UN intervention in Congo resulted in the fall of Lumumba's government and the murder of Lumumba in September, which had been planned by the CIA. After the murder of Lumumba, a new regime was installed under the leadership of Mobutu, who aligned the government of Congo with the U.S. government, which led Ghana to redirect its resources to other liberation movements operating inside Congo. By September 1960, most former French colonies in sub-Saharan Africa had become independent, and President Houphoué Boigny of the Ivory Coast convened the Abidjan Conference in October, which subsequently led to the Brazzaville meeting in December, where the Union Africaine Amalgash, UAM, was established. The Brazzaville group sought to cooperate in economic, cultural, and diplomatic matters and agreed to set up a joint Afro-Malagasy economic cooperation organization. The group was dissolved in 1964 as the result of the formation of the OAU, but until that time, the Brazzaville group played a significant role in slowing down the unification of Africa. The consolidation of one block resulted in the consolidation of another block, in November 1960, Nkrumah visited President Madibo Keita of Mali, and the two countries established a joint parliament in principle, and in December, the Ghana-Guinea Union was expanded with the inclusion of Mali. Next, the leaders of Ghana, Guinea, Mali, Libya, Egypt, Morocco, and the Algerian FLN met in Casablanca from the 3rd to the 7th of January 1961, which in turn marks the establishment of the Casablanca Group. The countries of the Brazzaville group, Tunisia, Nigeria, and Liberia, were invited but refused to participate. At the Casablanca Conference, the countries reaffirmed their commitment to African liberation and unity as a necessity to withstand Western imperialism. They agreed to set up an African consultative assembly, a heads of state committee, economic and cultural committees, and a joint African high command as soon as conditions were favorable. The largest all-African peoples conference took place in Cairo in March 1961. The agenda was dominated by the Casablanca Group, where the Deputy Speaker of the United Arab Republic, Saeed Fouad Galal, was elected chair, and Abdullahi Diallo of Guinea, <clears throat> of Guinea was elected conference secretary. In the opening speech, Diallo addressed the issue of neocolonialism, which became the dominant topic of the conference. He pointed out that although the French were pretending to leave Africa, they had, in reality, created a chain of puppet states. President Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt stated in his opening speech that it was always a moving occasion for those fighting a common cause to share their experiences, learn from each other's lessons, and replan their strategy, and noted that this new meeting was in the wake of the battle for the Congo. He further commented that while many believed imperialism was on the retreat, it had shown itself to be flexible, skillful, and it turned the UN to its advantage. Quote, Lumumba was killed, and his blood will drip from the UN flag till that flag proves its worth and safeguards what it symbolizes. After careful consideration of the recent disintegration of the African colonial empires, and in particular, the history of Liberia and Tubman's relations with the US, Nkrumah and Sekouture drafted a resolution on neocolonialism which was adopted at the conference. This resolution conceptualizes neocolonialism as, quote, the survival of the colonial system in spite of formal recognition of political independence in emerging countries. 
when the recognition of national independence becomes inevitable, they try to deprive these countries of their essence of real independence. This is done by imposing unequal economic, military, and technical conventions, or by creating puppet governments following false elections. Whenever such machinations appear insufficient to hamper the combativity and determination of popular liberation movements, dying colonialism tries, under the cover of neocolonialism, or through the guided intervention of the UN, the balkanization of newly independent states, or the systematic division of the political or syndical vivid forces, and in desperate cases, goes as far as plots, repressive measures by army and police, and murder. Neocolonialism manifests itself through economic and political intervention, intimidation and blackmail in order to prevent African states from directing their political, social, and economic policies towards the exploitation of their natural wealth for the benefit of their peoples. The resolution identifies the United States, West Germany, Israel, Britain, Belgium, Holland, South Africa, and France as the main perpetrators of neocolonialism and notes that these neocolonial powers install, quote, puppet governments through fabricated elections and force African states into economic blocks which maintain the underdeveloped character of African economy. The neocolonial state is infiltrated through capital investments, loans, and monetary aids and direct monetary dependence. Military bases have been introduced as, quote, scientific research stations or training schools, and the foreign embassies are the, quote, nerve centers of espionage and pressure points on the local African governments. Other agents of neocolonialism are the national military personnel in armed forces and police who remain loyal to their former masters, as well as representatives from imperialist and colonial countries under the cover of religion, moral rearmament, cultural, trade union, and youth or philanthropic organizations. Propaganda by radio, press, and literature, and controlled by imperial powers, is considered a central neocolonial instrument. Additionally, puppet governments in Africa are being used by imperialists in the furtherance of neocolonialism, such as the use of their good offices by the neocolonial powers to undermine the sovereignty and aspirations of other African states. The resolution was formulated in radical terms and popular rhetoric, but it was based on a combination of Marxism, realism in international relations, and historical experience of Liberia. The All-African People's Conferences had reoriented the Pan-African movement from the realm of idealism and romanticism to that of practical politics. All of the African leaders agreed upon the disintegration of the traditional colonial structures. However, the divisions between the socialist and capitalist blocs deepened with the formation of the Monrovia Group, led by Tubman and Enamdi Azakiwe, the Governor General um, of Nigeria. The group was established with support from the U.S. and advisors from the Benelux countries less than two months after the third AAPC. But the Benelux countries, by the way, are Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg. In May 1961, the 12 countries from the Brazzaville group, including Ethiopia, Liberia, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Somalia, Togo, and Tunisia, met in Monrovia. The Monrovia group officially became known as the Conservatives Group, advocating for a slow, gradual approach to African unity with focus on state sovereignty. Tubman denounced the Casablanca Group and ensured that members of the Monrovia Group would not transition to the Casablanca Group. One powerful tool used by the Liberian government was to disseminate the rumor that Nkrumah was power-hungry and wanted to become the leader of the entire African continent. This is interesting. 
As a Kiwe, the governor uh, general of Nigeria uh, also denounced the Casablanca group and emphasized the Monrovia group represented uh, 133.1 million people in contrast to the Casablanca group, which only represented 53.1 million people. And this is very, I think, telling. Uh, He advocated for a concert of African states with structures similar to the UN and promoted a nonviolent strategy for achieving independence similar to Mahatma Gandhi's. Well, yeah, that's to be expected from the conservative bloc. The meetings of the Monrovia group took place in private and opposition groups such as the African Trade Union Confederation were denied access. The Casablanca group denounced the Monrovia group as puppets of the neocolonial powers. The Addis Ababa conference that established the OAU in May 1963 was marked by a sharp division between the Monrovia group and the Casablanca group. Before the conference, Nkrumah published and disseminated his book Africa Must Unite, which argued why it was necessary for a united socialist Africa. In his opening speech, Nkrumah stated that imperialism, quote, has grown stronger, more ruthless and experienced, and more dangerous in its international associations, and that not a single African state is strong enough to resist neocolonialism. He argued that if Africa did not unite quickly, then the continent would sink into that condition, which has made Latin America the unwilling and distressed prey of imperialism after one and a half centuries of political independence. In contrast, Tubman's speech at the conference was extremely moderate. He acknowledged that never before has unity of action been more desirable and urgent, but emphasized that the Liberian delegation had its own view of African unity, which Liberia would promote during the conference. The OAU charter was signed in May 1963 with a preamble stating that African heads of states were determined to, quote, fight against neocolonialism in all its forms. However, Wallerstein notes that the conference was a victory for the Monrovia group, and Arigi and Saul argue that the institutionalization of Pan-Africanism through the OAU became the guarantor of defensive conservative nationalism and a force for smothering significant challenges to the status quo. In a letter to Ernesto Che Guevara, Mehdi Ben Barca, and Malcolm X, Nkrumah stated that the OAU, quote, has been rendered virtually useless as a result of the machinations of neocolonialists and their puppets. For Nkrumah, the OAU charter became a charter of intent rather than a charter of positive action, but he considers the OAU as being preserved as an innocuous organization that may one day revitalize and create an effective pan-African organization, which will lead to genuine political unification. After the Addis Ababa conference in 1963, the Monrovia group and the Casablanca group dissolved their formal structures. However, the struggle between capitalism and socialism continued, and the Cold War intensified in Africa, which materialized into changes of regimes by coup d'etat and constant realignment of African states. The Monrovia group had succeeded in slowing down the formation of the AU, but the Casablanca group had promoted socialist pan-Africanism to such a degree that it continued to gain momentum throughout the African continent and beyond. With backing from the USSR, Ghana and Guinea supported armed independence movements, such as the popular movement for the liberation of Angola, and the Liberation Front of Mozambique. They denounced African leaders acting as puppets of the neocolonial power through public speeches, conferences, publications, and radio and TV broadcasts. The socialist-oriented Pan-Africanists emphasized the connection between capitalism and imperialism, which made most African leaders claim they were in favor of a form of African socialism in order to distance themselves from imperialism. But not without a few exceptions, as in the case of President Tubman of Liberia, 
Nkrumah stands out as one of the chief promoters of scientific socialism in Africa, which in Liberia became known as Nkrumahism. Most Liberian intellectuals and politicians were familiar with U.S.-style liberal capitalism, and few scholars distinguish sharply between the broader term African socialism and scientific socialism. Nkrumah's work was therefore often referred to as African socialism in Liberia, his book, Neocolonialism, The Last Stage of Imperialism, published in 1965, became the single most influential work at the University of Liberia, even though it was prohibited under Tubman's regime. In this book, Nkrumah outlines the processes and mechanisms of neocolonialism and includes names of individuals, corporations, financial institutions, and government intelligence agencies, with a particular focus on the U.S. as, quote, foremost among the neocolonialists. It was the first publication to use the word neocolonialism in the title, and despite its non-academic style, Nkrumah's analysis and arguments are similar to those of the dependency school of thought. Many of these anti-imperialist works, known as underdevelopment theory, emerged in conjunction with revolutionary struggles in various parts of the world. Nkrumah's government invited many left-wing scholars to Ghana from across the world to study the pan-African struggle against colonialism and neocolonialism. Nkrumah's work was so controversial that the U.S. government officially condemned the book and considered it, quote, deeply disturbing, offensive, and unacceptable. In a circular telegram from the State Department to embassies in Africa, the State Department stated that it would hold the government of Ghana, quote, fully responsible for whatever consequences the book's publication may have. Former CIA station chief in West Africa, John Stockwell, stated that the United States saw Nkrumah as a serious threat to their national interests in Africa and had him removed from power in 1966. This was accomplished by a military coup executed by the Ghanaian army when Nkrumah was on a state visit to China. It was engineered by the CIA station chief in Accra, Howard Bain, and executed without producing, quote, one shred of paper that would nail the CIA hierarchy as key responsible. It was in line with the U.S. NSC Directive 10-2 of 1948, which specified execution of U.S. covert operations should be conducted without the ability to be traced back to the U.S. government. After the coup, Nkrumah's political party, CPP, was made illegal in Ghana, and all documents and books associated with Nkrumah were burned. People in possession of literature written by Nkrumah would risk prosecution by the new regime. Nkrumah moved to Guinea, where he became co-president with Sekou Touré. He continued his political activities and promoted socialist pan-Africanism through any possible means, such as radio broadcasts from Conakry, the formation of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, and publication of additional books, most notably the Handbook of Revolutionary Warfare, Guide to the Armed Phase of the African Revolution, and Class Struggle in Africa. As Dar es Salaam became a center for radical thinking in East Africa, Conakry became the center in West Africa, and many Liberian students and intellectuals secretly traveled to Conakry to hear Nkrumah speak and study Marxism. From many letters sent by Liberians to Sekou Touré, Nkrumah noted that, quote, these people are also waking up, and he saw this as having great potential for the advancement of the All-African People's Revolutionary Army because it evidenced that, quote, the human and material forces in Africa are poised, all that is needed is coordination and inspiration to spur them on to action. In November 1970, Portugal attempted to prevent Guinea from spreading socialist pan-Africanism by sending a seaborne mercenary army from Portuguese-ruled Guinea-Bissau. The army bombarded Conakry from the sea to create bridgeheads for the invading forces. 
Some of the invading soldiers went directly to where the radical thinkers and political activists lived. Nkrumah and Amakar Cabral were targets, but the Guinean government was expecting the attack and had moved Nkrumah and Cabral to an alternate location. The Guinean military mobilized rapidly, and within 24 hours, Guinean forces had repelled the military invasion. Nkrumah continued his political activities in Conakry until he became ill and died at a hospital in Bucharest, Romania, in 1972. About a year before, on July 23, 1971, Nkrumah's primary opponent, President Tubman of Liberia, who considered socialism, quote, a mystical illusion that he would fight to the death, died in a hospital in London. VIP. 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 Very important person means in a power, in a social power. Be special person, but everybody gets in power everywhere. Everybody gets in power everywhere. I say everybody gets in power everywhere. Everybody gets in power everywhere. Him get him power over him all more like everywhere. Oh. Molu white driver. Him get him power over him boss and conductor everywhere. Businessman Unko, him get him power over employee and employer everywhere. Inspector General, him get him power over different, different recruits everywhere. President, him get him power over Kalakuta Empire everywhere. Oh. Head of state in court, him get him power over him own country everywhere. Two coming. 
money get the power. He take up talk nonsense. Uh-uh. Why? I don't know. I don't know. Money get the power. He take up cheat person. Uh-uh. Why? I don't know. Uh-uh. I don't know. Money get the power, it comes still money. Why? I don't know. You don't know anything at all. You is my brother. <laughs> Try this one. Him not no hungry people. Him not no jobless people. Him not no homeless people. Him not no suffering people. Him go the right best car, him go the shop best food, him go the live best house, him go the water for road, you go the commons for road for him, him go the steal money, he be wrong man. <laughs> 